Live from Ogasawara, this is the Monster Island Film Vault, Episode 12, Daniel DeMana vs. King Kong 2005. Hello, kaiju lovers, and welcome to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast seeking entertainment and enlightenment through tokusatsu. I am your host, the card-carrying curator of the Film Vault, Nathan Marchan. But joining me today, as promised for quite some time, the one guy, I swear to you, the one guy who is more excited about being on this island than I am the author and creator of the Godzilla novelization project, Danny DeManna. That'd be me. <laughs> and I am, and I am super duper excited. I, I, mean, I am super duper excited. I'm seriously, man, did you come here on a sugar buzz or is it just being in the presence of all the kaiju? Well, I actually came here. Um, you know, and I have to share this story before we actually like get on the air. I, uh, <laughs> I, I don't have anything against my man, Jimbo. He's a nice guy. Jimmy, my man, we're buds, we're buds. But next time, getting me to the island a little bit differently should be a priority. I'm not trying to be mean. I think we bonded a lot during our 14-hour flight. I really do. He took you but, on a 14-hour flight on, what, the SY3? That's his oh, favorite one. I wish. I wish, Nate. I wish, Nate. This is what happened. So about, I don't know, about 4 o'clock this morning, I get a knock at my door, right? And I decide to open it. There's no one out there. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on? So I'm in an apartment. My eyes are stinging because of the light from the hallway. I walk out and I look out in the parking lot. And what do I see? I see Jimmy on some kind of weird pteranodon robot. Right. What? Just that thing? <laughs> yeah. That thing? Yeah. Oh, you didn't know he had that, huh? You didn't know. Jimmy. What, so what the heck? You have it on loan from what you, you what was the name of that scientist again? Because his name is escaping me. You're writing about Kazuma, his life in the in a in a novelization. <laughs> uh, Kazuma Aoki. Yeah, you borrowed man. that thing from him. Oh, actually, you stole it. Oh boy, I'm not looking forward to the paperwork. Oh boy. <laughs> I don't know how he got it, but I was kind of expecting a different ride. But what do I see at four o'clock in the morning? Jimmy on this pteranodon patting the back seat as if to say, come, do you remember how slow this thing flies in the movies? Oh, well, guess what? Oh my goodness. Over the Pacific, 14 did he, hours. Did he at least bother to put seatbelts in it? If there were seatbelts, he super did not indicate to me that there were seatbelts. So <laughs> Jimmy, what are you doing endangering the lives of my guests? That's not an excuse. Not an yeah, excuse man. whatsoever. I mean, I, I got no beef. I really have no beef, man. I swear. I swear. It was a fun ride. We had some nice conversation. I think I fell asleep and drooled on your shoulder a little bit. Sorry <laughs> about that. But 14-hour flight, you can't help but bond with the guy that you're holding on to for dear life so you don't <laughs> fall into the Pacific. I finally got here, and we docked in uh, Jim. Okay, so first of all, listeners, you, you don't know. What most mortal human beings call a warehouse, Jimmy calls a garage. <laughs> this, oh really? This place is this place is he. I mean, he's got parts of robots everywhere, man. It's freaking huge. Yeah, I've heard so, about that. I've wondered how yeah, the so, heck he's moving all that stuff around because I don't know if he has help. Yeah, honestly, it was a miracle I found my way out of there because that's pretty much where I've been for a while. He just kind of left me there, so I'm here. I got here. It's all good. I'm not angry at Jimmy. I'm, yeah, okay. He was just a little bit distracted. I think he was uh, a little distracted. I, I don't need another guest feuding with Jimmy at this point. You know, him and John uh, already had a little bit of a thing <laughs> last episode. I'm just saying. No, it's, it's, 
It's all good, Jimbo. Can I call you Jimbo? You'd prefer I don't call you Jimbo. I'm going to call you Jimbo anyway. <laughs> so anyway, Jimbo. No, no, he's, you know what? We pick on each other. It's fine. We're buds. I think we bonded. I have to stay on his good side because I'm pretty sure I have another 14-hour transit on flight ahead of me to get home. But that's fine. That's fine. It's all good. Well, I can't tell you if you want something to get back at him a little bit for writing that ridiculous Pteranodon bot. (laughs) Here's a little jingle for you. You can just whisper it in his ear on occasion. Who can novelize your favorite Godzilla film? The Dandy Man can. (laughs) Original. I'll take it. I'll take it. I was going to whisper, I don't like sand into his ear. But I, I... Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, you, you, you've brought down the thunder. He's raging. Jimmy... He's raging right now. I only see him get this crazy if you bring up his unfortunate experiences in the war in space. <laughs> true, true. I, 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 I'm, I'm in the wrong here. Misa, sorry. Uh, I think... Oh my gosh. I think we're going to have to get to the entertaining info dump so he can have a few minutes to calm down because today we are discussing the epic 2005 remake of King Kong specifically just so everyone knows clarification. We will be discussing the extended cut, not the theatrical version because that is my preferred version. If I remember correctly, that is your preferred version as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Gotta go long or go home, that's what I say. Future Nathan here, inserting himself using Futurian editing technology because apparently when I do a King Kong movie set in 1933, I forget to do this. Our toku topic for today is vaudeville. And now, back to the show. Well then, through the magic of editing, we'll let Jimmy have a break, (laughs) we'll go watch the movie, and then come back. Kong is a lonely and angry giant gorilla worshipped as a god on Skull Island. While he is often a force of nature, he exhibits many anthropomorphisms such as laughter, tantrums, depression, and sign language. When he first acquires Anne, his goal seems to be to take her to his lair and kill her, but later it's to protect her from the dinosaurs on Skull Island and keep her as a companion. The monsters making their home on Skull Island include the Brontosaurus, Venatosaurus, Photodon, Vestatosaurus Rex, Scorpiopede, Wetarex, Terapes Mordax, Arachnoclaw, Carnictus, Deplector, Furacutus, Piranodon, Decarnosimex, Megapede, Deraponesis, Salasimex, and Noxmuscus. These dinosaurs, insects, and other beasts attack Kong and the Venture crew either to protect their territory or eat them. Anne Darrow is a plucky and kind out-of-work vaudeville actress who joins the expedition to Skull Island because she needs work and because she's a raging Jack Driscoll fangirl. After being taken by Kong, she at first tries to escape him but soon bonds with him and seeks to protect him from exploitation. The manic and unscrupulous film director Carl Denham leads the expedition because he's determined to film a movie in an undiscovered location in order to get a contract with a studio. Once his camera is destroyed, he's hell-bent on capturing Khan and exploiting him in a Broadway show. Jack Driscoll is a quiet and thoughtful playwright hired by Denham to write the script for his movie. He falls in love with Anne during the voyage, so he stops at nothing to rescue her from Kong and the monsters after they reach Skull Island. The gruff and pragmatic Captain Englehorn commands the venture at the behest of Denham, but his first priority is keeping his crew alive. 
Bruce Baxter is a snooty and cynical actor who's starring in Denim's new film. And while at first resistant, he does, quote-unquote, play the hero for real when the crew treks into the jungle to rescue Anne. The human plotline focuses on the character's personal goals and struggles for the first hour, but once they reach Skull Island and Khan takes Anne, it is unified with the kaiju plotline. Starting then, their actions are in some way connected to Kong, although their individual subplots continue to be developed. While he is absent for the first 70 minutes of the film, Kong is the problem. The natives built a wall to keep him and the other monsters at bay. They offer maidens as sacrifices to Kong to placate him. Engelhorn leads an expedition into the jungle to rescue Anne from Kong, and 17 of them are killed, though the body count was probably higher, by the numerous dinosaurs and giant insects inhabiting the island. They do manage to kill some of them, such as the Fructus, with guns. Kong battles and kills three Vastratosaurus Rexes to keep them from eating Anne. When Jack rescues Anne from Kong's lair, the big ape fights a swarm of bat-like Pormordaxes, killing several. Kong smashes through the gate and many sailors restrain him with grappling hooks and chloroform, but he breaks free. When he reaches the coastline, Anglehorn shoots Kong in the leg with a harpoon and Denim smashes a chloroform bottle on the Eighth Wonder's face, knocking him out. Kong is taken to New York where he's chained to a stage, but he breaks free after being angered by the flashbulbs of cameras. The military attacks Kong with rifles and anti-aircraft guns, but he destroys a few and eludes the rest. The problem is solved when biplanes are dispatched to attack Kong after he climbs to the top of the Empire State Building with Anne. He destroys several of them but succumbs to wounds from gunfire and falls to his death on the streets below. This is an epic story with multiple characters and subplots, making it the most complex film in Kong's history. However, some characters and subplots receive more development than others. Like the 1933 original, Peter Jackson's remake is a tour de force of special effects. His team at the New Zealand-based Weta Digital utilized multiple techniques including CGI, motion capture, green screens, and even some practical effects. A real freighter was purchased to be used for the venture and refitted to look more accurate to the period. It was painstakingly recreated as a set and as a CGI model. Practical jungle sets were layered into shots with CGI backgrounds in a similar fashion to what was done in the 1933 film. While not filmed on location, New York City was meticulously recreated as sets in New Zealand and in Weta's computers. Depression-era clothing was accurately crafted for the actors. Kong himself was played by Andy Serkis both on set in an unusual costume and via mocap in post-production. His performance brings an unprecedented level of expression and pathos to the Eighth Wonder not seen since 1933. While some effects do look dated now, most still hold up to scrutiny. Thanks to Jackson's background in horror comedy films, this is a fun but often dark and horrific adventure tale with a tremendous amount of gravitas and emotion. While the creatures are presented in a more quote-unquote realistic fashion compared to the original film, this remake still airs on the side of fantasy. In terms of story and content, the film isn't experimental. However, Jackson was given complete creative control thanks to his rousing success with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, so he was allowed to create a three-hour epic that expanded on the world and characters of the original film. As monster movies go, that was risky, but it wasn't unprecedented for Jackson and company. As a remake, the film reinforces the style of 1933's King Kong with its character setting, story, and mythology, among other things. It also reinforces the styles of King Kong Escapes and the 1976 remake of King Kong by giving the Eighth Wonder a quote-unquote love interest who sympathizes with him. 
As a fan of the 1933 King Kong since childhood, Jackson had wanted to remake it for years. He was given the chance by Universal Studios in 1996, but the studio canceled the project to avoid competition with Disney's remake of Mighty Joe Young and TriStar's ill-fated Godzilla. The project was revived in 2003 after the success of Lord of the Rings. The film was a loving tribute to the 1933 original intended for Kong fans, monster fans, Jackson's fans, and filmgoers alike. The film grossed $562.3 million on its $207 million budget, making back two and a half times its production costs and becoming one of the top five highest grossing films of the year worldwide. It was a critical hit as well, with an 84% rating and 266 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes and a 7.2 on IMDb with 377.19 votes. It was nominated for several Oscars, winning for Best Special Effects, among other awards and wins. Like he did with the Lord of the Rings films, Jackson created an extended cut of King Kong when it was released on DVD. It is 13 minutes longer. While most of the additions are extensions of existing scenes, there are several new Skull Island sequences with the Venture crew battling more monsters, such as the Scorpiopede attack on the raft, as well as a New York scene with a gung-ho officer giving his soldiers a pep talk. There are many forces at play. The vaudeville theater where Anne performs is closed due to a combination of the depression and growing disinterest, which compels her to consider work in burlesque and then take Denham's offer to be in his film. Denham is working against a studio system that limits his creativity and ambition. Jack writes a screenplay for Denham because the depression has made it difficult for him to succeed as a playwright. Nature and civilization collide when the Venture crew fight Skull Island's monsters to rescue Anne, and again later, but in reverse, when Kong is taken to New York. Kong desperately seeks a companion with the sacrificial brides, but none of them satisfy. Superstition and modernism clash when the protagonists meet the violent Kong-worshipping natives. Militarism conflicts with nature when the army battles Kong in New York. Unlike Marion C. Cooper before him, Jackson intentionally infuses themes into his film. Anne stands up for herself by refusing to sell herself, so to speak, as a sex object in burlesque theater or in Denim's film. Denim's ambition and unscrupulousness brings about the deaths of 17 crew members, as well as the downfall of Kong and himself. Bruce Baxter puts aside his ego and cynicism and becomes a real-life hero when he helps save several characters from the pit. Jack learns to commit to his passions, in his case, theater and Anne, despite overwhelming opposition. Jimmy, quote-unquote, grows up under the mentorship of Mr. Hayes while having his medal tested on Skull Island. Anne learns to trust Kong after he saves her from monsters, and she in turn does what she can to protect him from exploitation, showing that compassion should be extended to the lonely. Like in many of his films, Kong breaks his chains, potentially symbolizing slavery. Denham quotes an old era of proverb, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and it stayed its hand from killing. And from that day, it was as one dead. However, it's framed as a tragedy since Kong dies heroically as a misunderstood monster, with Denham remarking, It was beauty killed the beast. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations, and thankfully this wasn't as long as the film. Let's see if we can do that with the Toku Talk. Now, having seen the movie and given Jimmy about three and a half hours to not contemplate murdering you. <laughs> Sorry, Jimbo. <laughs> so, 
the big reason I wanted to have you on the show is I saw you mention one time on Twitter that this is actually one of your favorite movies, period. Absolutely true. Because it's just it's just so darn good. I have um I have a lot of really wonderful memories associated with this film. I saw it in two thousand five when it came out. I was um I was twelve years old at the time. You're I was me feel uh, old. I'm sorry. I was, I'm sorry. I was in I was in college <laughs> and saw it during Christmas break. <laughs> I was I was a baby. I was a baby. I was twelve years old. You know, I knew about King Kong before that. He's just one of those things that's in the zeitgeist. People who haven't seen a Kong film know who King Kong is. You know, it's the the iconography of the Empire State Building and just the, the giant gorilla. It's it's everywhere. It's parodied everywhere. It's referenced all over the place. So you know. But at the yeah, time, I mean, I actually, when I had yeah. my, my four friends in our first big discussion episode, episode two on the 33 film, by some act of God, none of them had seen it, but they knew all yeah. the references. So when we got I to remember. those, those yeah. when we got to those moments in the movie, they're like, oh yeah, now I know what that is. I'm like, congratulations. <laughs> you joined the club. When I, you know, when the movie came out, I had, cause you, I remember you talked about how you saw the 76 version yep. before you saw the 33 version. My first Kong was 2005. That was my first really? exposure. Yeah, that was it. Really? Your and, first Kong was 2005. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned before in that episode, I believe my first Kong movie was King Kong versus Godzilla. I know, I can't remember if it was before or after. I know it was pretty close to it, but I know I read the Lovelace novelization because I found it at my local library. I, and I don't remember if that was after that or not. I knew about Kong. I knew about the original movie. I knew a lot of things, but you know, I was a kid, right? And I, I mean, I hadn't, I didn't have a huge frame of reference for it. And I remember sitting in the theater watching this thing unfold. But of course, that was the, the slightly shorter theatrical version, of yeah, course, because the 13 yeah. minutes shorter. I think something like that. Think something like 13. that. There, yeah. I looked it up on IMDb there, yeah. and it's billed at, I think three hours and seven minutes, but the version we watched today in my screening room was three twenty. Yeah. It's not, it's not a short, both versions aren't short, but I prefer the extended cut, but uh, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, only yeah. Peter Jackson can make a three hour <laughs> movie about a giant monkey. Hold it, Jimmy. I see where I see you, you were going to pipe in. I get it. Kong is an ape. Not a monkey. Yes, VeggieTales tells us so. Moving on. If you, I mean, if you can't trust VeggieTales, who can you trust, right? <laughs> that, that is true. Larry the Cucumber. Another, no, Larry the Cucumber knows everything. I'm just saying. This is another piece of my childhood. There, <laughs> I remember sitting in the theater watching this film and being just completely riveted and on the edge of my seat because, again, I'm a kid. I didn't know how it was going to end. I assumed how it was going to end because it, it's pretty apparent that he's not going to make it. But I remember sitting in the theater and thinking, "My God, if they kill this monkey, then I'm going to be very." Very, very, very sad. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. And it, of course, I saw it all play out and it just it just hit me in the gut. I mean, I, I could go on and on about why I, I love this film. And I will, likely, while we are talking about it. But <laughs> I, I don't want yeah. this episode to be as long as the movie. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, but, we'll no have to reel there. ourselves in at least a little bit, I think. For sure, because there's a lot to talk about. There's something interesting going on in pretty much every frame of this film. And if we were to talk about all of it, we'd be here oh until the, probably June. This, I don't know. Yeah, something like that. 
there is so much detail packed into this movie. I was realizing that while we were watching it. It's just like every single frame has little hints at world building. And yeah, this is, you know, it's 1933 New York. I get it. And, you know, it's most of the world, actual world building, if you want to call it that, is when they're on Skull Island. But there's just so much detail packed into it. There are little Easter eggs that are oh, in yeah. there. Well, one of my favorite ones is... Denim gets annoyed that an actress, I can't remember who, I had it written down someplace. Was it when he was talking about Faye? Was it actually Faye Ray? <laughs> yeah, he said Faye's the right size for the costume. And she's uh, doing a picture with yeah. RKO and and, dun, dun, dun. and then, <laughs> the and then Denim says, Cooper, I might have known. <laughs> I might have like, That is genius. Oh, and before that, there was a universe. There was a joke about how Universal needed stock footage really bad. <laughs> there are Easter eggs all over this film, and that's something that twelve-year-old me didn't pick up on because I hadn't seen the previous version. But being older and looking back, with uh, you know, obviously after that film came out, I sought out the nineteen thirty-three film pretty darn quickly and I quickly realized how much of a connection there is um, right down to the fact that certain rooms in the venture are decorated with spears and drums that were used on the set of the original movies. And then when we get yeah. to the Broadway scene when they have Kong on display oh, in the theater, it, it was straight up. It was Max Steiner's music and the costumes are like the 1933 film and just, exactly. that even was, have, it was a yeah. giant trip it's because Peter Jackson is a super fanboy for this stuff, and he has a collection of Kong memorabilia that is unbelievable. And I'm pretty sure every piece of his Kong collection is in this movie somewhere, right down to the when uh, Adrian Brody gives Jack Black the the like the what is it like a 15 page script, yeah. and then tries to bail <laughs> on him. That was the actual Edgar Wallace script from 1932. That, <laughs> that he's oh, to. That I do remember that. I bet they had to handle that with kid gloves. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even wanted to touch it. I mean, I would have been terrified that I'd destroy a piece of history, but my God, like it, it's just everywhere. And it all comes back to one of the reasons that now, 15 years later, that's a long time, me looking back at this film now, I have a new level of appreciation for it because from top to bottom, beginning to end, three hours plus, it is a love letter to the original movie, and it's a remake made right. It's yeah, a remake it, it's done a, with integrity. Yeah, I think that, honestly, if you're going to remake or you're going to reboot something, there's two reasons to do it. For one thing, if you want to work on a remake or reboot a good movie, you have to do it like this, where it's meant as this love letter, this tribute to it, because nowhere do I feel like Jackson or anybody working on this movie is trying to upstage the original film. Absolutely There's nothing true. nothing but love yeah. for it. They clearly love the original movie. They're just taking that story and trying uh, some different things with it and expanding on it, but it's not in a way to say, the original movie's bad. That's not well, that was not the oh, intent. Sure. Yeah, the other way not. I think you should do it is if you find something that's bad and you say, "How about we actually do this right?" I can only think of one time, and I'm sure maybe Jimmy or listeners, if you know, if they want to send in some feedback, I would love to hear this. If they can name some other remakes that were where you know, it was a bad movie and it was done well, and the only time I can think of where that happened was Kaneko's Gamera trilogy. Yeah, but, not a bad comparison. I actually think it's one of the interesting changes in this version is Jack Driscoll is a playwright. And as a writer myself, and I'm sure you might appreciate this as well, we get someone like us in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's, and again, that's something I appreciate more now than when I was, you know, just barely 
double digits old when I saw the film the first time is the, the fact that like so many of Jack's lines stick out to me now because he is a playwright. He's writing a story. Things like the, the fact that it almost feels like they're writing the adventure that they're actually going on as they're going on it. <laughs> and uh, in- interesting lines that he has um, where he talks about actors, they travel the world and um, they, they're always looking in the mirror. And then that's when Anne sees him in the mirror, which is a cool moment. And him just kind of talking about like, hey, you changed my dialogue. It's cool. <laughs> I changed the dialogue. I mean, you're using the original script. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that that's kind of the inside joke. That that was one of the scenes where they, they literally just copied and pasted lines from the 33 film and put it in there. <laughs> women, women are a nuisance on ships. I, uh, I, I actually love that they did that. That entire little moment is so great because it takes a little bit of that, the magic of their Anne and Jack's relationship from the original movie and puts it in here. And I almost interpreted, because again, it's implied that that's not what Jack wrote. The I think this is awfully exciting. I've never been on a ship before. I've never been on with a woman. It's implied that they each did their own thing with the script and didn't follow it. And then later on, he says, it's not what I wrote, but... I still enjoyed it. It was funny. I thought you were funny. I thought it worked. You don't have to be nervous about it. I almost feel like that reflects Jack's change of character in the film itself mm-hmm. because he's not what was originally written. In the original film, Jack's the first mate of the venture, plain and simple. I, maybe there was a little bit of nervousness in making that big, because that's the biggest change in the film compared to the original one movie. One of it's, them. It's, yeah, it's one of the biggest one, changes. It's two or, three, two or three really big, solid changes. But in terms of like the characters, Jack's the biggest one. I mean, Carl Denham is shifted slightly, but he's close. He's almost yeah, the original. Yeah, I was going to say, let's talk about the characters yeah. then. Yeah, that's, this yeah, seems like a yeah. good place to go. So we've talked good about sex. Jack. Adrian Brody does a great job with oh, he's Jack. Great. And I like that he's different. I feel like a lot of the characteristics of the original Jack, I think, were shifted a bit. I think a lot of them went to Anglehorn in this because Anglehorn's younger and he's gruffer. And, yes. and then some of them kind of went to, we have a brand new character actually with Bruce Baxter who yes. is not in the original <laughs> movie at all. And, no, and, no, he's and, not and they in any shifted version. some of Jack's traits into him. Jack Black's denim is very interesting in this. Whereas the original Carl denim was, was blustery for sure. Overconfident oh, yeah. and yeah, certainly got in over his head. But really only had a few moments where I would genuinely say he is disregarding human life. And that was really only fleeting moments. You know, it's like stuff like where he says, we need to get Kong. And he's like, well, how are we going to do it? Well, we have what he wants. And he looks at Anne and then they're like, nope, you're not doing that. I feel like Jackson took that moment and made that the entire character in this because he's more unscrupulous in this movie. He's not, I wouldn't say he's full, he's not a full-fledged villain. There have been some unused scripts where they make Denim a full-fledged villain, but he's definitely in it for his own gain as opposed to the love of film, we'll say. There's also the slight chance that he's a little insane in yeah, this film. Which is, the, um, I think comes yeah. from the fact that they cast Jack Black in this, and that was interesting cast. I remember when that was announced back in the day, and they said they were going to have Jack Black play Carl Denham, and I thought, really? Jack Black? I mean, this was casting. a guy who was known yeah. for doing comedies like Shallow Hal, and you know, he was in... Tenacious D. Tenacious yeah. D. So, you know, and that was, people knew him for that. Now he's like, he's going to be Carl Denham. He brings a manic energy to Carl Denham that Robert Armstrong didn't have. And it's not bad. It's not better necessarily. It's just different. 
Yeah, it, it works. It really, really works. And this is something that, again, I went into it with an interesting perspective because this was also my first Jack Black movie. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, this, him on screen as Carl Denham was my first exposure to him. And later on, I found out that this was like his casting in the film is one of several key reasons that a lot of uh, monster fans in particular don't really dig on this film that much. I mean, there are other reasons as well, but a lot of people just couldn't see beyond the fact that that was Jack Black. And so they couldn't take him seriously as Carl, which isn't really a reflection on the film itself. It's it's a reflection on the viewer. But I never had that problem. And I think he's actually quite, even if unexpectedly, brilliant in this film. I think he brings it. He's focused. Like a lot of the his, his moments in the film are just his face. Like they're close up on his face. There's a lot and of he, facial close ups in this, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of like a lot of the movie does, but when it hits on like each one has a different kind of a connotation, like and you see her worried or you see her scared or you see her kind of caring about Kong close up when it hits on Jack. I feel like there's a lot going on. Um, Jack Black, not Jack Jack Black. Yeah. 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 Jack Black, not Driscoll. Um, I'll just, I I don't know why I'm not going to be mildly confusing. There's a lot of Jacks going around. (laughs) It's Jack and Jack in the King Kong store. But uh, yeah, uh, denim. I'll say that. Like when you, his eyes are always doing something like he's always focused on something, usually on where his camera is. And um, that's what, that's one of the things that really jumps out at me as being beneficial for the film in the extended cut. There's a moment when they're climbing out of the spider pit where he has his line about right before you drown, your life flashes before your eyes. And if you're an American, you get to see it all in color. And he has that twitch. He has a mouth twitch and an eye twitch where it looks like he's starting to go a little nuts. And uh, even Bruce Baxter's like, yeah, okay, pal, that's real nice and all. Why don't you get out of this demon pit? of giant bugs uh, and we'll worry about your insanity later but like, little moments like that because that's pretty much right after he lost his camera like Jack Black brought it in this film yeah. he did a really really solid job and again it's a lot of comedians do good dramatic roles oh heck it's, yes. it's uh, I mean comedy is need hard I, comedy is hard yeah. if you can master comedy yeah. you can do drama easy Robin Williams would, need yeah. I say more you would think it would be the, the yeah. reversal because people have this idea that people who are funny, the humor comes easily to them. I'm like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not easy. The, the The ability to get in and tickle a funny bone is not an easy thing to come by. If you can get in there and like really get a sense for that, you, I mean, I won't necessarily say you can do everything, everything, but a lot of doors are open for you because getting into those emotions, all you got to do is tweak a couple things between comedy and drama and you can tap into similar places to make it work. Yeah. I wouldn't say that Carl Denham is like a drama filled role in this film, but compared to school of rock, I mean, it's yeah. definitely a different, <laughs> definitely a different beast compared to what we're used to seeing Jack Black do. I mean, and I never had the problem of going in with any kind of preconceived notion in seeing a Jack Black performance like this. So I think he, I think he was really good. Yeah. I really do. We have to talk about her. We have to talk about Anne. Naomi Watts Absolutely. in this, who, if I remember correctly, is actually blonde. I'm like, Fay Ray. <laughs> she, um, she, she has slightly darker hair. She wore a wig uh, for this film, much like Faye oh, did. Okay. <laughs> She's not as dark haired as uh, Faye was because Faye was a brunette. And uh, according to, you know, certain people uh, involved, you know, she, she, I mean, she did. She claimed she went out and got that wig herself. You can't have a King Kong movie like this and not have the blonde hair. So yeah. Naomi. Only once is, have they not yeah. done that. 
that was uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, and I think King Kong's like, "Hey, look, me, a Hama. I can I skip blondes. Say. I can skip blondes once. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll make an exception. I'll make an exception. Me, a Hama. Because the thing about her performance in this film is that all of the other, like having Kong with the girl, is such a thing. Every movie has to do it to some extent. But yes. before this film, there was only one Andero. Aside from the the Mighty Kong cartoon musical that they did, where there was an Andero, <laughs> that, that, that thing's weird. But, oh yeah, I, we're I not wondered into if that. I wondered if I if I should cover it in this, and I decided eh, it's not really a Panthers. real King Kong movie, so I'll skip it. And then, the Mighty Kong and then King Godzilla versus Kong got shuffled around. They're like, well, dang it, I probably could have fit it in the schedule because I needed filler. But the other uh-huh. movies I was going to do after that, so okay, well, I'm not going to break the they're, schedule they're that hard. <laughs> But for all intents and purposes, there was only one. It is, it is funny to, to think about that because it is such a trope in the Kong films. But there had only been one, and that was Faye. And if they were going to cast anyone, I mean, it's they don't look completely similar. But when you put them in the, like, she has the same coat and the same hat and dresses throughout the she film. She looks I mean, just like could, her. That, she, that, that scene early like on after, she, uh, after the theater gets closed and she's uh-huh. wandering around the street. And I'm like, that's, that's oh, Faye Ray's it. costume. They found it. That's she, Faye, that's she, Faye looks exactly, she looks exactly the same. I love it. In and, fact, yeah, and, luckily yeah, for so Na- luckily for Naomi Watts, she had the opportunity to actually meet Faye Ray when they were doing yeah, production of the film because I guess Peter Jackson knew her. And yeah, what, so what, they, yeah, so they went up. to go see her. The <laughs> Naomi Watts shared this story about how <laughs> Faye Ray still talks like a character in a 30s movie. Because <laughs> he yeah, walked in and she, yeah. she, you walk, Peter Jackson walked in and he's like, hi, this is Naomi Watts and she's going to be Anne in my new King Kong. And she's like, what? her? You know? <laughs> yeah, there's then, only you know, one Andero. I'm Andero. Yeah, I'm Andero. Yeah, but then the, she said that they hung out for a little while and when they were done, Faye Ray said, Anne's in good hands. So that, was, yep. you know, she gave her seal of approval on... Uh, Naomi Watts, her blessing, I guess you could say. And tragically, while they were filming the movie, uh, she died, which was very sad because Jackson wanted to have her make a cameo in the movie. In fact, he originally had scripted the final line, the iconic line, it was Beauty Killed the Beast. It was going to be said by an old woman in the crowd, and it was going to be her. Yeah, but and what a scene that would have been it if would they'd have, have been able it to. It would have been amazing. It would have very and a great role reversal, I think. Yeah. But now it would have been what beautiful. we got was Jack Black delivering a line as denim like the original film. So yeah. as so second choices go, yeah. this was a great one. But still this was a great one. Have, it would have been great to have had her in the film and doing that. It would have been a really magical moment. It would have been really, it would have driven home the, the, the reverence for the original film that this one, that this one carries in its DNA. And it would have been really good. And it's, they almost got it. And she kept saying no. And yeah. she said no. And she said no. And then the last time that PJ and her met, she said, never say never. And then, I don't know, a week or two after that, yeah. she had passed. Yeah. They were oh, so close, and it would have been amazing. I'm, you know, having Jack say it. He, uh, Jack Black. There it goes again. He, he did, <laughs> too many Jacks. He did great. Yeah, I too mean, many Jacks. My old tangent. Denim's assistant is named Prescott. And I kept thinking, where have I heard that name before? And then I checked. Oh wait, we had Jack Prescott in '76. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> is that an homage? That's a weird homage. <laughs> but that character, yeah. that character yeah. wasn't in the original movie either. I don't know that one for sure. I know I, I, production of this film is one I know pretty well because they documented 
the crud out of yeah, it. They and documented I, the crud out of it, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's an actual tribute or not, but it could be. Yeah, it could be. But going back to Anne, another one of the radical changes, although when viewed in context, which is why I've been covering these movies chronologically, this is technically not new. It's just the first time that someone named Anne Darrow has done this. She's sympathetic toward Kong. Now, we've already had that in King Kong Escapes, and we had it, a very weird version of it in King Kong 76. <laughs> Yes, we did. It's good old, uh, good old, good old Kinky Kong. Yeah, uh, there's a porn yeah. parody waiting to happen. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Oh God, I, I, I refuse to cover. If anyone wants to start sending me suggestions, I don't do porn on the show. <laughs> good choice. Yeah. Moving on. I endorse this decision. <laughs> yes. I approve this message. <laughs> That's right. Anne is sympathetic. Now, it doesn't happen instantly. So when we get to, when she first meets Kong, we get classic Fay Ray. She even gives us some nice screams. She's a good screamer, uh, yeah, too. She's a good screamer. But she doesn't scream nearly as much as Fay Ray. The other thing that's different is this version of Anne Darrow is also a little bit more proactive. Even before we get to the island, she's doing things like saying, I'm going to go get an audition when the theater closes, the vaudeville theater. So she's already taking charge and trying to do something. And then when she has the meeting with Denim, which <laughs> as several of my friends pointed out in episode two is weirdly creepy. And their first thought was, is he into human trafficking? But you know, yeah. you know he says the line, do you think you could fit in a size four? And she tries to get up to leave. He's like, no, wait, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. It is almost like they were playing off of the potential to read something creepy into the original yeah. scene from the 33 yeah. version. And I never interpreted the 33 version as being creepy. I, I think that's something that people tend to do in like modern times is they'll look at older films and be like, oh, well, a stranger danger. Yeah. You know, because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a different time, different version of storytelling. Yeah. But yeah. telling it uh, within the last 20 years or so, that scene, it very they're very clearly being some tension there. And then Jack Black completely blows it for like, a second and he has to backpedal and be like i'm on the level no funny business which yeah. is a line from the original yeah, film which is a line for the original movie which yeah. is really cool but she like i yeah. said she's already being a little bit more proactive and it's one of those things that's interesting looking at their characterization of Anne in this because there's some modernity in that but it doesn't feel invasive it doesn't feel like it's violating the character or the time period because and that's a big deal which yeah, is something I that, that i feel like a lot of storytellers and filmmakers have problems with now. <laughs> uh-huh. I, but, I, I agree. I agree. But then what becomes really interesting is, so like I said, she first meets Kong and we have classic Fay Ray stuff. She's terrified, understandably so. But then she starts being proactive about trying to get away. She's not sitting around necessarily waiting to be rescued. She's not paralyzed with fear. She's trying to get away. It doesn't work, but she tries. You know, she plays dead and then she thinks, wait, I'll perform. So she starts dancing and juggling and doing her vaudeville routine as a way to distract him or at the very least keep him from killing her. Exactly. And it works. But then other things happen. You know, the dinosaurs show up and then Kong has to protect her and Jack eventually gets there and rescues her. And all, so all the same things happen, but she's taking a much more active role. And again, it doesn't feel like a violation of the character. We'll get into that a bit more in the next segment when we talk about vaudeville because vaudeville is a unique element in this film. So she uses her skill set in a creative way to save her life in this. And then the genius of it is that she inadvertently, by doing that, 
forms a bond with Kong. Unlike the 76 version, it's not sexual in nature, which I adore in this because the 76 version feels really weird and a little bit icky. But with this one, (laughs) and that goes to how they were characterizing Kong. So I guess, well, we'll get in. Well, we'll save that for a little bit later. But because of how they're characterizing Kong, she forms a bond with him and it doesn't feel weird. It feels like a friendship. And that's why I really like this. So it's one of those things where it's an element of the story that is serving more than one purpose. This is a wonderful, wonderful reimagining of Andero. I can't say that enough. I completely 200% agree. They were really walking a fine line between being uh, respectful of the original film, the original character, but also making sure she wasn't a damsel. You know, that's not the kind, you can't tell that kind of a story anymore. And it it is more realistic the way that they did it anyway. And the way that they do it is really, really like just super solid. Um, From beginning to end, she's built up as a character. And, you know, that's, that's generally how I refer to it as. I don't see a character as like a male character or a strong female character. I like to look at characters and she's a character in this film and she develops naturally throughout it. She does not just sit there. And the scene that really drives that home for me, aside from her doing her vaudeville routine, uh, you mentioned she has to get, she, you know, Kong saves her from the Rexes. But there's a key difference here because in the original film, uh, uh, if you'll remember, he puts her in the tree. She makes no attempt to escape. He comes back when the Rex comes. They fight. She makes no attempt to escape. The tree gets knocked over. She could escape. She doesn't escape. She watches the fight. And then Kong wins, turns around, and she screams. He picks her up. And it's same old, same old. In this film, there's a moment right before the fight where she is sandwiched between the two predators. She's got a Rex on one side and Kong on the other. An amazing amazing shot, I have to say. An amazing shot composed to look like Gustav Doré-esque scenes of Skull Island from the original film with dark foregrounds and like backgrounds. So it was like eight homages in one. And she, what does she do? She walks backwards towards Kong. She makes a choice. She's not running and she's there, not because she's paralyzed with fear, but because she trusts her friend, her protector. And so she doesn't run because she now trusts him and she could get out of there. She could use it as an excuse, but there's something deeper going on there. She doesn't run completely away. She goes and stands pretty much right next to him. And then he boops her out of the way and he goes and wins the fight. And then he, you know, he has his little moment where he's like, mm, I'm not speaking to you. Yeah. And um, he looks up and what he is, was upset. He's yeah. like, I he was upset. I was like, I came back and I fought these things. I saved your life. Don't yeah. thank me or anything. Yeah, don't like, thank it's, me. And then he walks off and she could escape, but she decides to go with him, not because she's some 1930s helpless female, but because there's something deeper happening here. And of course, she does feel safer with him as well. That's a huge part of it. But she's not sitting there paralyzed with fear. She's proactively trying to find a way to survive and also to be with this thing that she now knows for sure is willing to fall off a cliff, get bit, get flipped over, get tail whipped, whatever, to protect her. Yeah. And so that is a huge evolutionary step from screaming Fele, but it's one that doesn't feel like it was shoehorned in just for the sake of putting it in there. It feels like that's what she'd actually do. And it is a completely respectful way to update her character and make her not so helpless and make her more of a character and, you know, less of an object 
for Kong to keep toting around throughout the island. And that is a hugely, wonderfully progressive thing to put into a film. But it's not not just that. It's just about telling a good story and with good characters. That's what this film does. And I really, really appreciate that. I have been saying for the longest time that if you're a writer or an author or a screenwriter, whatever it is, story is king. Everything else is secondary. Story is king. If you're worried about, you know, you want to have a certain theme or message or whatever, I get it. Mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that will just naturally come out as you're telling your story. You, If you start with message, if you start with theme, you just end up hammering it into people's heads and they're not going to enjoy it. With it's, this, it feels yeah. incredibly natural. Yeah, like I said, this, is, a, this yeah. is 1933, yeah. Yeah. but we have elements of modernity in it, and it doesn't feel like a violation. I'm going to keep saying that. It doesn't feel like a violation. That's the key thing, because this story could have taken place in 1933 and would have felt authentic. And that's another big word that I find myself using with this film a lot is authentic, because it feels very much of its time. But it's also very big and grand because of the story being told. Peter Jackson actually said this himself, and I thought it was kind of a fun way to do it. He was speaking specifically to the uh, aesthetics of Skull Island, um, but I think it applies for the entire film, is that he treated it as though he was going back to 1933's King Kong with a color yes. video camera and shooting it again. Yes. Uh, same same <laughs> kind of thing, same time period. The taxis are all driving around New York. The, you know, the, the Skull Island is there. The dinosaurs are there. But he's shooting it through a slightly different lens that doesn't corrupt the era. On one hand, it doesn't seem like it should be that hard to pull off, just tell a good story, but it's not as easy as it sounds, especially when it comes to keeping it authentic. Aside from the visual element of the film, recreating New York, things like that, and the clothing, I think it's the best example in the film of keeping a story grounded in its era without feeling like it needed to be, you know, very 2005 in its uh, in in the way that it presented things. But speaking of that fight, uh, there's an interesting progression to that because, again, Anne tries to get away and then she bumps into the giant Komodo dragon things, then tries to yeah. hide from those, runs into some giant bugs. That was very unpleasant. And then the, the <laughs> Rexes catch the Komodo dragon looking things and then she has to deal with those. So it's a nice escalation. And when I was watching that, I was thinking to myself, hey, Jimmy, sorry, not sorry. There's always a bigger dinosaur. Oh, calm down. <laughs> I think he's had enough of that for one podcast. <laughs> Probably. Sorry, Jimbo. <laughs> Probably. Even though I, I would love to transition to talking about some of these newer characters that are not necessarily in the original, but we need to talk about Kong. This is a great time to talk about Kong, the other big character in this film. The big character. <laughs> the big character. And again, we're doing a different spin on Kong without violating the core of the character. Because one of the things that bugged me, and if you've listened to enough of the previous episodes to know this, I've come across way too many essays about, I have read too many essays on this big ape and his movies. But (laughs) there was one that I kept coming to because it it was was driving me nuts, where this guy insisted that every Kong movie, he didn't mention the the 2005 one, but he he said that every Kong movie that came after 33 infantilized him. I'm yeah. thinking I've that read, is I've incredibly that. unfair. And I have a feeling he would probably still make the same argument in this. But it's because in the original movie, Kong is a beast, a curious one. I don't think there was anything sexual going on in the movie. I don't take a sexual oh, interpretation of the, of the 1933 film as we established in no. that episode. But there's certainly a curiosity there. And I do think the tragedy of Kong is still present in that. There is still sympathy to be had by Kong. 
if there wasn't, then I don't think it would have become the cinematic icon that it is. If you didn't feel bad for the character, and character is the key word here, because yeah. Kong is the character, the main character in his film. If you didn't have that emotional connection to him, then it, the character wouldn't have resonated. And I mean, we're coming up here in three years on 90 years of King Kong. I know. 90 years. And we're, we're coming and up only, on movie and, number and, and nine. And keep in mind, around the time that I put the podcast version of this episode out, there's going to be a special screening of the original movie. Yes, I'm there is. I uh, pumped for yeah. that because I, I found there is gonna, going. Yeah. I found that there is going to be a screening here on Monster Island. Of course, I pretty much. Of course, I pretty much is. told the board of directors, "You can't let this pass up and not show the movie." <laughs> One of the things that's magnificent in this is they actually wanted to develop Kong as a character, and they wanted to give him a motivation, and they went in some really interesting directions. Well, in the original film, Kong was presented more as a monster, kind of the mythologized view of gorillas, you know, as being these aggressive, virile animals. Yeah. This one, they did a lot of things with real science. Heck, Andy Serkis, Gollum himself, who did the mocap in this, and I am going to keep saying this forever and a day, mocap is modern suitmation. I don't care what anyone says. If A.G. Superai was yeah. around now, he would love mocap. Just say It's an evolution of the same concept, and it also carries over from the previous versions because Andy Serkis is a genius, and I couldn't think of anyone better on this planet to do you know, what he does, but specifically for Kong. It proves like it, one very, very key thing about King Kong as a character, and that is a person in one way or another should always be portraying him. Yes. Um, the, the original Kong is the closest it got to not, but that was still Willis O'Brien's hands. And, and very much you know, Willis O'Brien's personality. And people who knew him watched that film. His wife said that she could see her husband yes. in the way Kong moved and emoted and boxed. You know, because yes. he's a boxer. Like she, if that's a, if that's not a performance, a performer doing a performance, I don't know what is. So yeah. I think Willis O'Brien, in effect, played Kong. Yeah, um, really, and then you, the I Japanese really films. Really yeah, you had yeah, the Jap uh, you had uh, the Japanese films had people in there. Uh, yeah. Suichi Hirose did uh, him, and, and then Nakajima, and then you had um, the Rick De Laurentiis film. Rick Baker, my man, Rick Baker, uh, uncredited, but um, never forgotten. And he, <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's also a pretty amazing performance. And yeah. carrying on from there, I mean, Skull Island had some mocap done. Mm -hmm. Not as much, but enough. But the, the scenes in two, like 2005's Kong needed to have, for all of the ambitious places they were planning on taking the character, again, I'm using the word character here, they were trying to develop him. And you got to have a person, you have, a, you have to have a face. Yes, you do. Doing that. You have to have a soul behind those yeah. eyes and Andy Serkis has a soul like as, oh, as, as big as a mountain. Oh my gosh. He certainly film. does. And he did his homework. He actually defied Jackson yes, and, the, and the studio a bit and actually a great paid <laughs> for his own flight from New Zealand to Africa so he could hang out with real gorillas because he wanted to see what real what not gorillas and zoos because you know that's that's one interesting thing that's different Nakajima when he was doing Godzilla and then when he did Kong he saw gorillas in a zoo Andy Serkis yeah. did him one better and actually went and saw wild gorillas <laughs> in person and he the saw dude, how they the, and he yeah. and he saw what yeah. they did and they did their research on real gorillas and worked a lot. This is probably honestly out of all of the uh, versions of Kong we've seen on screen, this is the most realistic one in terms of does he actually behave like a real gorilla? 
And in terms of how he's portrayed as well, he's designed like a real gorilla, and they did that on purpose. All of the other versions of Kong have some fantastical elements in their design. This one is quite realistic. They only took a few liberties with it. There's only, yeah, there's only a few tiny little touches, like the, the size of the feet, a couple like the way his back works. But other than that, it's pretty much straight up a gorilla. And again, that's something that a lot of people don't like about the movie because they think, well, they just took a normal gorilla and blew it up to monster size to each their own. But I really can't get on board with that way of thinking because, I mean, how many wonderful monsters are there out there that are just bigger animals? Yeah. Kong was always supposed I mean, to be that. I mean, come on. One of, the, one of the greatest monsters to come out of Japan is a giant moth. Giant freaking butterfly, man. And nobody, <laughs> nobody really bats an eye. It's a thing. Yeah. Anyway, and King, yeah, yeah. What it's they did with this that was fascinating is they found out the fact that in the original movie, really any of these other previous Kong movies, the fact that Kong is this loner, they said that's incredibly weird because real gorillas are very social animals. They live oh, in groups. They're incredibly social. They need each other. So the idea that you have this lone gorilla, that's an outlier. That is incredibly weird. And my understanding is the reason why a lot of animals, they form packs or groups like that is because they can't survive on their own. In one form or another, they get taken out by predators or something. That's why they form packs. So the fact that Kong is by himself, they use that element where he's just like this rogue gorilla and they use it to their advantage because there's an implied backstory. We really only get it in that there's bones of what looks like dead giant gorillas, which really gets expanded upon when you once you get to Skull Island. Yeah. Yeah. So they're really making it clear. Kong is the last of his kind. And by extension, that's possibly why the natives are sending him brides and why he gets angry. He's angry because he's alone. That's what this boils down to. He's angry and he's alone. He is the last of his kind. You may have seen, just like in Skull Island, they talk about in Skull Island, he may have seen all the other members of his family die. So they anthropomorphize him in a way just like that, but so he's angry because of that. And then these brides just don't work. They're not the same thing. I read an essay in Tracking King Kong that actually made the argument that this King Kong is not motivated by sexuality. He's not hoping to mate with any of these brides, or maybe there's a level of frustration with that for him because he can't. He can't have a companion like that. So that's why, he, in her estimation, and I do think it's a good estimation, he may have just taken Anne, just like he took any of those other brides, with the intent to just take her to his lair and kill her in his rage. But because she amuses him and forms a connection with him, he doesn't do it. But that also explains why we have moments like when she slaps his hand, when he keeps trying to knock her over because he thinks it's funny. He's like a little kid. He's like, "Uh, you (laughs) fell over. That's funny. And then she slaps his hand and says, no, that's all I have. What does he do? He throws a tantrum. Yep, he's a big, big child. Yeah, he he throws a tantrum, smashes a few things, rock falls on his head, which is funny. And then he won't even look (laughs) him in the eye. He won't even look him in the eye because he's embarrassed. He's embarrassed. Yeah. And, at, yeah, and it's at that point yeah. we realize that's why he's angry. He needs companionship because he doesn't have it anymore. He's a communal animal and he has been denied that. And now suddenly he has a new companion. I don't want to say friend. I want to say companion. It's a good, yeah. And he disappointed her. She spurned him a little bit and it upset him. And that's what makes the whole rest of the story work. It's not an infantilization of Kong. Kong, if you want us to look at Kong as some sort of a masculine figure... That's still present in this, but he's a wounded masculine figure. I don't think there's any shame in that at all. It makes him much more interesting of a character. So then you're you're feeling for him. 
and it adds to the tragedy at the end of this. I can't begin to tell you. I mean, you saw it when we were watching together. I'm like, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. And I'm getting emotional. You get yeah. to the last 20 minutes of this movie. I got, I'm like, I'm getting I got emotional. emotional I'm getting emotional <laughs> about a monster movie. I haven't felt like this about any of the other monster movies I covered on this show. I can't even name any kaiju film I have ever seen where I get this emotional, other than maybe Godzilla 54. That one can tug on you, but... Different reasons, different but it reasons. definitely can get, yeah, for but it can get reasons, in there. Yeah. I am not afraid to admit, I was pretty darn close to tears when I got to the yeah, end of I, this. this movie, this movie, and again, I'm not afraid to admit it, it's hard for me to get through this film, especially the ending, without a few tears. It's so well built. The scene with her doing her performance, and then that's actually my favorite moment of Andy Serkis's performance in the entire film is when he has his tantrum and he looks, he, he has this very sheepish look on his face and he just kind of realizes that, wow, she, she means business. There's, I think she has power over me right now. You know what I mean? And that's where it really begins. And it builds throughout the entire film to Kong's very, very end. So the end of that character, to the end of his life, to the end of his soul, having gone on that journey, it just makes it all the more crushing because I think that's something really beautiful that this film did because the 33 Kong gradually builds up interest in Kong and some sympathy, but most of the sympathy for Kong comes at the end. Um, or maybe like maybe when he's being gas bombed, you know, like you kind of feel bad for him and then you put him on, you put him on display and it's just awful to, to see him up there like that. Yeah. And at that like, point, yeah, because yeah. the audience at that point is thinking, okay, he did terrible things, but now you're just exploiting the poor thing. I didn't avoiding him and it's terrible and by the time he climbs the building we're rooting for him and we hate those airplanes and we want him to and that, which is why when he takes one of them down in the original film it's a cathartic moment but it's the inevitability of tragedy he can't live through that and so when he dies at the end of the 33 film we've gone on this emotional roller coaster journey where we're scared of him then we get him and then we're rooting for him and then when he dies it's awful this film takes what the original film did in that regard and builds it up to almost operatic levels of yes. tragedy. I said, um, I I mean, said about in episode two that the original Kong film, and I'll say it about this one too, you can't look at Kong 33 and look at it realistically, unlike some of the essays that I've read. It's mythic, uh -huh. not realistic. This is also mythic. It takes that yeah. mythicness and kind of cranks it up to 11 and then throws in some elements <laughs> of Greek and Shakespearean tragedy while it's at it. It's very Greek because, and again, you mentioned this in a previous episode, the question of, is Kong a tragic hero? In this um, movie, he is. In this movie, he There's absolutely no is. no question about it. He's a tragic and, hero in yeah. this one. In Greek tragedy, what happens to a lot, like what is the, what happens to the main character in those stories? A lot of times they were about people that suffer terrible, horrible, cruel fates, um, even though they have, they have done no evil. In Kong, you know, is trying to survive. You could very, he's very vicious, but you could, you could say that he's not, he's not evil. Kong's not evil. He hasn't done any evil things. He's defended himself and he's been lonely. He's a victim of, you know, the circumstances of his life. But what does he do? He ends up having this horrible crushing fate, which is very Greek tragedy. It's, it's the same idea behind uh, one of my favorite monster movies, the, uh, the original Wolfman from 1941. Oh, yeah. The idea of Larry Talbot being a man who has not sinned yet is struck by the gods, if you will, with a terrible curse that he cannot escape, uh, as the sequels proved. Uh, not even death can cure him of this horrible <laughs> thing. He's a, good, he's a good man, and Kong is a good creature. 
It is very operatic and it is very tragic and it's, it, it is mythic because at, at, again, you've mentioned this before and I 200% agree. Kong's story is not a literal thing. It is, it, it is a myth. And that's why movies like King Kong and, uh, you know, Star Wars does the same thing because it's very mythic. The first few yes. films very, very much tap very, into that. Very yeah. the hero's journey. I wouldn't say Kong is a hero's journey because it doesn't hit all of the, the points that like Luke Skywalker might, but it's all very connected because we resonate with those stories. We resonate with hero's journeys. And even in the case of Kong, where it could be argued that it's not strictly like a hero's journey in, in a, the sense that like Joseph Campbell might talk about, but he is a hero who meets a fate that he does not deserve. It's just, oh, it's just so crushing. So the way that the movie ultimately builds on Kong's character throughout the film, we see him be vicious. We see him be a little ashamed of himself. We see him uh, doing some, not human-like, but he's never physically anthropomorphized, which I like. You know, he laughs on a couple of occasions. And he even almost signs with Anne at the end. Beautiful. So it's almost like they're talking to each other, but they're not because he's, you know, he's not being anthropomorphized in a very physical sense, but it all builds because of the character that we see. Andy Serkis's performance, uh, how Anne reacts to him helps build our understanding of his character. And it all comes together in a way that the 33 film didn't, not saying one is necessarily better than the other, but just saying that it's different. Both are equally valid in trying to get us to that end point because it's the same story and Kong is going to fall off that building no matter what. And it's all about how we get to that moment and how it's going to make you feel. Because if the Kong at the very beginning of either of those films had fallen off a building, you probably wouldn't feel too bad. But at the end of the film, we have gotten into his head and into his soul and we understand him. And this version of the film does that in a way that's like just utterly masterful. And so by the end, it's one of those not a dry eye in the house kind of films. Absolutely. Fine, Jimmy, yes. Danny and I were hugging at the end because we we needed a little comfort. There, I said it. Was an emotion, it. it was an emotional time, man. It was an emotional time. Yeah. Where were you during the screening, Jimmy? Where were you? Oh, getting everything ready? Sure. <laughs> okay, as far as excuses go, I'll take it. It's fine. It's fine. Or maybe he was <laughs> prepping that Pteranodon bot for you. <laughs> uh, probably. I really hope I don't have to fly that thing home. <laughs> Unless I get to keep it. I'll, I'll, if I get to keep it, I'll fly that thing to work. <laughs> oh, my God. Can you imagine? That, that would be very interesting, to say the least. But Everybody's now. pulling up, and I'm <laughs> gliding on my pteranodon. I can dream. Uh, the winter would be problematic. But <laughs> Man, <never laughs> but no. Now let's, uh, let's talk about some of these new characters. We have a few new ones that weren't necessarily in the, the 33 version, although, as you hinted at before, some of them are lifted from the novelization because the novelization had a slightly different cast of characters. The most obvious one, as we hinted at before, is Bruce Baxter, played by Kyle Chandler, a man who has bragging rights for life as far as I care because this man has been in a King Kong movie, a Godzilla movie, and is going to be in Godzilla vs. Kong. <laughs> So he's been if in I a could, Kong dude, film, a G film, and he's going to be in the crossover. He's been in approximately 
one more Godzilla and Kong movie than I'll ever be in. So, <laughs> I mean, it's dude, like that, <laughs> put that on my tombstone, man. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And he does a wonderful yeah. job playing Mark Russell. I've talked with Mark Russell here because his daughter smashed the orca, but <laughs> when they were inspecting <laughs> the uh, monarch outpost here, but anyway, <laughs> he, uh, he was quite pleased with Kyle Chandler portraying him in that docudrama, I think is the correct term. <laughs> Godzilla King of the Monsters. Remind me, I need to try to meet him before I leave. I got a list of people I want to meet before I leave. Yeah, yeah. He's on there. We have some very interesting people working here. But anyway, so we have Bruce Baxter, who, like I mentioned before, kind of took on some of the characteristics of the original Jack Driscoll. And he's a wonderful addition in... he's funny he's definitely they're definitely playing up how he's this typical hollywood leading man there's some interesting lines that he has in reference to that you know he has a an exchange with denim where he says something about i just play a hero in the movies the real heroes are bald and have beer guts and <laughs> yep <laughs> you know, but then 15 minutes later you know he's swinging on a rope gunning down giant bugs so <laughs> So again, it, it, put it on my tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, so, I'll take it. So he becomes the he becomes that hero eventually. He's kind of comic relief, but he's not full-fledged comic relief. But a lot of the humor of the movie does kind of revolve around him or some of Jack Black playing Denim and some of the antics that he gets into. I actually like him as an addition in this. Yeah, I think he's really good. I think he takes because again, we talked about how Driscoll was kind of almost split up. Driscoll's an entirely new beast from how he was in the original movie. And I think the original attributes of his character were kind of split between him and Mr. Hayes, who we'll talk about in a second. Yes. Back, I mean, Bruce Baxter is just so fun. I mean, even his name just oozes like early 30s, like mat- matinee. I mean, like my, one of my favorite gags in the film is the the gag with the the mustaches and all the, the yeah. stuff drawn on the <laughs> Which uh, Peter Jack drew on himself. Uh, fun fact. <laughs> That's uh, great. Which is and They, they manufactured those po- posters. Those are fake movies. Those are fictional movies. Oh, yeah, those are completely <laughs> fake. Uh, uh, <laughs> he, uh, he said he took... Um, <laughs> he taking one of them home and hanging it in his bedroom. Yes, which I thought it's was hanging really up fun. above his bed. <laughs> but that's one of my favorite gags. And, you know, you said he's not really comic relief. I'd say he's, like, if you were to literally take the term comic relief and, like, and like make it very literal, he is a funny character that does relieve us of some of the tension during a couple of scenes. So he's yeah. not, like, an insane comic relief character that doesn't feel like he fits. No. But he does have an element of relief to him, and he fits into the story in a very organic way which is kind of yeah. it's kind of difficult when you're dealing with a film 1933 version that had uh, you know a handful you count the number of main human characters on one hand from that film and it's very streamlined and it works and uh, some might argue that adding extra characters like that doesn't really like why would you do that but it's not about fixing the 33 film like I said it's about looking at the same story and enhancing it and putting a couple of other fun little things in there and it doesn't get much more fun than a pompous 30s matinee uh, you know dude who was in a movie called Dame Tamer yeah you know? <laughs> well and that's right. the the other thing I like about this character is that he's, he's not a caricature he has yeah, just yeah. enough of that oh, I guess what I could say is he has enough caricature elements in him that it makes it a Using, but he's not a full blown parody, and I no, really like yeah. that. It feels like you took the, they took the guy off the poster, but then made him a real person. So you can look at him and recognize that oh, that's the guy on the the poster for tr- Tribal Brides of the a- 
Amazons, uh, <laughs> you know, all of those great titles. And, but like, this is him in real life. And he's just like a frustrated guy who thinks that he's, you know, he's a big movie star, but they put him in the, this teeny tiny little cabin. And what's the first thing he does is he hangs up posters of himself. So he's, yeah. <laughs> he, he looks like the person he's supposed to be, but he's not a caricature of that person. Yeah. He's, he's himself. He's a character and he's a hoot. I'm sorry. He makes me the mustache gag with the comb. I, I always laugh at that. Yeah. I have never not laughed does, at that. It doesn't it's come just, across as lame. It works. It works. It works. It works because this is the kind of movie that it is. It's set in the kind of era that you would expect it. Drawing the mustaches and all that on the guy. I mean, yeah, that's kind of a old, even kind of juvenile joke, but it, for whatever reason, works in this context <laughs> because I think it's just, it's the kind of movie and the kind of era that it is. Funny is funny, man. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, funny is funny. We'll touch on that a little bit later when we get into the, the topic for this episode. But, dude, like, it's drawing mustaches and, you know, monocles on, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah. It's not the funniest thing on planet Earth, but it's funny. Yeah. And then you mentioned Mr. Hayes, who I think is yeah. interesting. They didn't really address this, but again, that's kind of one of those th- little bits of modernity coming in here. We have a black man. Yeah. You know, who's the, f- I think he's the first mate on the ship and not he's the, Jack Driscoll. He's Driscoll. He's basically Driscoll. And so, so, and he's, he is so cool. <laughs> yeah. It might seem a little bit odd at first that you would have a black man as the first mate on a freighter in 1933, but you get over that very quickly and you just kind of go along with it. Kind of like how I'm not bothered by Charlie the Cook in the original yeah, film and in, yeah. Son, and in Son of Kong yeah. because I can just look at that and say, it's probably a Chinese immigrant, doesn't know a whole lot of English, just came to New York, needed a job. Was good they, with food. Yeah. So they I'm looking at this and I'm, yeah. yeah, and I'm kind of yeah. looking at Mr. Hayes the same way. I'm thinking he's probably a hardworking black man in New York, managed to get himself a job on this boat, probably because yeah. Anglehorn it's the only place, Anglehorn's yeah. a, you know, is a nice guy and knew he needed work. So, it's probably the only place he could get work at that time. I mean, a, he he might not have had any luck in nineteen thirty three New York yeah. getting which, another job, but which you know, thankfully Anglehorn with, uh, with what they were doing yeah. in the ver- the very beginning of this movie really establishes that this is the depression, which is very different from the thirty three film. The thirty three film only hinted at it. This was full fledged. Yeah, it's the depression. People are losing <laughs> their jobs. Here's a Hooverville, which was a real thing. I mean, if you listen oh, to yes, the, if was. you listen to the Toku topic in episode two, you'll hear all about this. And they're smashing bottles of alcohol because it's prohibition. And they, you know, it's you know, not subtle. <laughs> yeah, uh, all of these things. They make it very clear that's what this is. He's already probably dealing with racism. You, yeah. you add yeah. the depression on top of that. I, I like to imagine he probably worked and scraped really hard to get that job on there, and Anglehorn must really like him. Anglehorn doesn't strike me as a racist. No, so, Anglehorn is, a, is, a, is portrayed throughout the film as a good man, and uh, well, he doesn't strike me as somebody sure. who would, yeah. yeah, oh, for sure, but he doesn't strike me as being a prejudiced jerk who would yeah. look at a person and say, I'm not going to hire you because you have a different skin color than me. I, I, he doesn't yeah. strike me as that character, yeah. uh, thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, but and, yeah, he's, he's, he's great. Yeah, which like, I love the, Mr. Hayes. Cynthia Erb, when she wrote about this film, she actually argued that there's a level of depressiveness that actually is, because of the beginning of that movie, is added to this. The way Kong behaves is very much like emotional depression not the economic depression and then there people have lines in the beginning of the movie where they say well this this and this well that's depressing there's all of these very interesting plays on that one of the other things that's fascinating about mr hayes is he apparently knows joseph conrad by heart heart of darkness yeah. which is a wonderful book have you ever read heart of darkness 
I think it's one of those things that I've read parts of, but I couldn't tell you if I've read I, all I of read it the whole it, way through. I, but it's it been is. a long time since yeah. I've read it, and I kind of want to read it again now because I know Joseph uh-huh. Conrad had some influence <laughs> on the original uh, King Kong film as well. I find it fascinating that he's quoting it throughout, and that becomes a little bit of a thematic statement in this film. They're laying the groundwork with this, using it to kind of set the mood because that's essentially what we have going on here. It's a heart of darkness situation. Because let's be honest, this is probably the scariest <laughs> version of the Kong worshiping natives in any Kong movie. They oh, are, dear God. They are yeah. terrifying. <laughs> they aren't on screen as they, much yeah. as some of the other ones, but my gosh, are they terrifying. I it's mean, straight, the original, the I mean, it's, you know, even in 33, they're offering sacrifices to Kong. Now, that's kind of brutal, but they're still trying to do things like negotiate. They're like, we'll give you six of our maidens if you give us the golden woman. We don't even get that. They don't even talk nope. to him. We get they lots of rambling yeah. from yeah. a shamanist, <laughs> and they're just like, Kong, you, we don't even, it's very senseless. We don't even know why they want Anne. In the original movie, it's like, she's blonde, she's different. But yeah. in this one, they're in just this, like, yeah. you know, we're going to go to the ship, we're going to take the woman just because it's part of what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah in the 76 I, I version, that, it was yeah. because she was exotic. They didn't say it was specifically because, she, I think, well, maybe they did say it was specifically because she was blonde. You know, they tried doing the same thing. It was like, we'll trade. And they're actually a little bit more savage than the 33 version. They're straight. It's a horror. You can, I mean, Peter Jackson got his start doing horror films. Very and this is where that horror movies. I might oh, oh very, very, very. Oh my gosh. Oh, the, have you, have the, you seen dead alive? Schlock, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the bloodiest movie in the history of life? Yeah. That only has one good part and that's Kung Fu priest, but. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. He's pretty good. But yeah, he, this is how the man got his start. A lot of his movies do have the scary part or the intimidating part. This is like, okay, remember 12 year old me is sitting in the theater and the minute I heard, the minute I heard, okay, the natives in this film may have traumatized 12 year old me because the second I heard the little girl laughing, 12 year old me doped out hardcore. I was just like, yeah, I don't think so. So I watched most of that scene from between my fingers. Because I was, you know, you're in a dark theater and you're a kid and you're like, oh boy, this is not going to end well. So certain elements of the, like the scene, like the sound guy getting speared through the chest, like I didn't see that in the theater because I I didn't want to watch it. I, I heard it. And of course, when you hear it, it's so much worse in your head. The one time I decided to peek was when the old crone was coming oh. towards her. Gotta be calm. And she's got that thing. And she's just horrific. Once we get the orca fixed or something, we need to ask Kong how he puts (laughs) up with these people. I'm just... (laughs) Good question. (laughs) I mean, he's had several different groups of people who worship him. These people are the freakiest. I'm just saying. At at least on Pharaoh Island, they were just kind of quirky. Yeah. And the the ones from 33, yeah, they're a little weird and probably a little brutal. And the ones in 76 are a little weird and a little brutal. And then the, you know, the ones on, the ones in Skull Island are flat out pacifists miraculously, Uh but you know, we'll get to that next episode. (laughs) So these people, yeah, it's a horror movie. So the fact that Mr. Hayes is doing that, it really sets the mood. I really like his relationship. What was that kid's name again? His name was Jimmy. Wait, Jimmy? That may or may not have been you. How does that work? Trade secret? Him and his secrets. But if that's the case, you know how to dance? And you hung out on a freighter and all that kind of stuff in the 30s? I, uh, I am really confused. This is Godzilla versus King Ghidorah levels of confusion right here. I Okay. Ooh, my brain hurts. Yeah. Wow. 
There's a there's a twisteroo for you. You'll explain later. That's what the doctor said too. Moving on. So Jimmy, another new character, young kid, mysterious past, very much gets taken under the wing of Mister Hayes, and he's presented as the you know this kid who's he's confident, a little bit brash, and he really wants to impress everybody and do well by everybody and prove his worth. And Mister Hayes is always telling him, you know, he's encouraging him. But also, I love the moment where he's reciting a passage from Heart of Darkness. And then Jimmy says, this isn't an adventure story, is it? And Mr. Hayes says, no, no, it's not. <laughs> really the sets part. the mood. I really am kind of wondering if it is my intrepid producer, veteran and survivor of the infamous war in space, because let's be honest, they try to establish that Jimmy really doesn't know how to use a gun. And even Mr. Hayes says, hey, you know, I was in the army. That's an interesting thing. I was in the army and I had a drill sergeant. I had training. Jimmy's taken those bugs out with a Tommy gun with dead shot levels of accuracy. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> just saying that was impressive the whole was, yeah. his little mini arc in this whole thing is he's kind of growing up he's becoming a man he's going off into this savage untamed wilderness and growing through it and then in true joseph campbellian fashion his mentor dies to coin a phrase to yeah. coin a phrase <laughs> his mentor dies that's the moment where he really has to summon that courage and do what needs to be done and take out giant bugs in the spider pit with pinpoint accuracy. Well, that Tommy gun. <laughs> I don't think I would have let him shoot that thing anywhere near my, uh, anywhere near me. I'll just say that. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. So dangerous there. That's what's the wonderful thing about this is that we get some really cool secondary characters added into this that helps it to feel really feel epic. This is honestly, there are very few, and I'm going to say it. Some people may take issue with it. I'm going to call this a Kaiju movie. There are very few examples of kaiju movies that get this epic and have so, I, and yeah. part of it is the cast of characters that we have is it really adds to it. And again, this is this was the first Kong film I saw the whole way through uh, from beginning to end. And when I went back and saw some of the human elements, you know, I I, I watched watched the 1933 film. You don't necessarily go back and watch that and miss characters like Hayes and Jimmy and Bruce Baxter. But I, I when I first time I watched the 1933 film completely because I'd seen bits of it many many years earlier. And I you know older me realized, hey, wait, those characters aren't even in there. You know, I I kind of did find myself remembering the extra bit of depth that went along with those characters. Cause there were a lot of other characters that weren't Denim and Driscoll that went to go find Anne in the original 1933 film. There were, there was a whole crew of people there and only the two of them made it. But the idea of basically taking that crew and humanizing four or five of them and the rest of them are all dinosaur fodder anyway, but like humanizing them and making the journey through the forest, through the jungle, through the Island to get to Anne just a little bit more, I don't know, human would yes. be a good way to say that because again, the the chase is shorter and a lot of things are shorter in the 1933 version. Now, the but whole movie is shorter. <laughs> the whole movie is shorter. I mean, it's I mean twice as long. So going through, there wasn't a lot of chasing that was done in the 33 film. The chase is longer here and being able to get into the heads of more than just two of those characters really made it interesting because you've got Hayes and his relationship with Jimmy uh, and he, you know, he won't let, them ha won't let him have the gun and then he 
does let him have the gun, and then the mentor dies, and the the kid has to grow up. There's some of the other characters that kind of went along for the ride, which we'll we'll get to in a second with our next few characters. But uh, it just made the entire journey more dramatic and more more tragic because when guy no, you know sailor number three gets curb stomped by kong in the original film you're just like hey that guy got killed that was pretty gross but when Hayes gets thrown against a wall and falls down into a pit yes. of bugs and i mean he died on impact so uh, he, didn't get he was to, the lucky one <laughs> he was yeah. actually lucky in that scenario yeah, let's, be like, let's be honest let's be honest Peter Jackson has the spider pit sequence in this one, which may or may not have existed in the 33 film. It's in the script, but yeah, there, it there was, are images that were taken yeah, of the set. Yeah. And, and they use that for reference in this because a lot of the creatures do look, uh, some of the creatures in the spider pit. Well, it's not even a spider pit. Just the pit looks similar. Bug pit. Yeah. They look similar. We'll call it a spider pit because that's what everyone calls it. Jackson wanted it in this movie and he needed to have a justification for it. Probably because he's realized I'm already making a three hour movie. I need to have a justification for having this in there. So the justification is that it has a plot point, which is that Denim's camera gets smashed. So we have a, exactly. we have a story reason for it being in there. And he did that on purpose because he wanted that spider pit sequence really, really bad. As, as, far, as far as excuses go, that's a good excuse because any yeah. Kong fan knows the, the mythology of the spider pit sequence so to make the film again and make it this big epic thing and not have the spider pit scene in there just it, you'd notice if you knew if yeah. you knew that it, like yeah you'd notice so but oh I, my God, i'm that going to tell you so bad i am going so to tell hard. you hayes was the lucky one because god that, that's, <laughs> the, the spider pit sequence grossed me out when i saw it the oh. first time it oh. grossed me out today it has grossed me out every single time i have seen this movie I just it is ah uh, because I keep forgetting that wild. Skull Island is apparently like Texas. Everything is bigger, including <laughs> leeches. Good. Oh my god. God, Le- giant Great. leeches slowly eating you and just developing your head and which is why, ironically, we're talking about this. There's a line in the movie. I think it was Denim who said this. He said, yeah, "Monsters belong in B movies." Yep. yep. Which is an interesting statement considering. Yeah. The monster genre really wasn't that much of a thing in 1930. It so it's a couple fun. of the Universal films, and that was about it. Most of the B films that were made back then, getting all weird film nerdy here, were actually westerns. But anyway, it's a funny line, yeah. and I appreciate but, it. Yeah. So, <laughs> unf- oh, that spider pit sequence. That there are reasons. There are reasons why none of those critters have been allowed on Monster Island. The scientists don't want them anywhere near here. So they have been, they have been left on Skull Island, and they, occasionally they send a team of scientists over there to study them, and then we send the EDF mutants to squish them. <laughs> I can't imagine why you wouldn't let them on. I can't imagine. Can't but, imagine. So we're talking about Andy Circus, Lumpy, a character who it's been a long time since I've read the the Lovelace novelization, but my understanding is Lumpy is a character from the novelization, and he yes. more or less serves the same the the role of Charlie. The cook from the original film there's one really Basically. funny moment i thought because i was waiting for this as i had kind of forgotten what happened to lumpy <laughs> oh, oh did it. you now yeah a little bit oh, so I, I was watching it it's like i'm waiting for a scene where lumpy and kong are in there are, ha- are together because it's andy circus fighting himself we get it sort of because yep. lumpy's on the log and he does shoot at kong. as close as we get so we get that. I was thinking to myself, how hilarious would it have been if Lumpy got killed by Kong? <laughs> so it's Andy killing Circus himself. killing himself. 
Oh, God. He probably would have loved that, too. (laughs) I think he would have. You know, he's doing the mocap. He's like, and now I'm going to smash my face. (laughs) I'm just imagining Andy Serkis running around with, like, a Ken doll. And he bites the head off. (laughs) And he bites the head off. It's like, uh, hi, this is Peter Jackson. Uh, What are you doing today uh, in the the lab, Andy? I'm I'm eating my head off. (laughs) interesting fact i forgot to bring this over we we're talking about denim when they were writing the script this version of denim was modeled after orson wells but then in true kong tradition much like robert armstrong did jack black modeled his performance after his director <laughs> so, yeah. so robert armstrong modeled his performance after marion c cooper jack black modeled his performance after peter jackson which is kind of interesting <laughs> which is funny because there are several moments in the film where they were shooting footage to get motion capture reference for the for the insect pit scene and they put peter jackson in the suit to play the mocap suit to play denim they accomplished it by throwing pillows yes. at their director <laughs> that's, on is, the, that's on the blu-ray <laughs> that's on the blu-ray and it's a great little story because peter always wanted to be carl denim i mean what little boy didn't want to be Carl Denham and go make a movie on a giant monkey island. But it's, <laughs> uh, oh, it's, but Jimmy says, uh, Jimmy. Oh, sorry, uh, well, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, sorry. I had to stop him. He was going to tell you it's an ape. Anyway, <laughs> but no. So we have Lumpy get Andy Circus. So Andy Circus doesn't have to wear a mocap suit the entire time, which is pretty cool. Again, a little bit of a comic relief character, but he's also a bit of a voice of reason in this. Yeah. The kind of telling everybody, what are we doing? This is stupid. And, you know, but again, kind of one of those secondary characters, almost not quite throwaway. He's more than just monster fodder because, yeah. you know, you get a little bit of an attachment to him because, like I said, he is this voice of reason. He's the one who's trying to be sane in this insane situation. And then he gets yeah. taken out yeah. by the aforementioned band from monster island leeches the most gruesome death possible uh, he told uh, a funny story about how he was i think he was telling his kids before they went to the premiere of the movie that he was going to get killed by leeches or something like that and then he told the story he actually about didn't how, yeah he didn't know yeah that, that, oh that, yeah that's yes, what he, they were he knew gonna he was do. gonna die in that scene but he didn't know what it would look like so he watched he, it for the first time at the premiere with his kids and they're like that was gross <laughs> Like, what's it like inside that thing's mouth, Daddy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so... Like, he apparently was uh, just howling with laughter during the screening. He lost his mind. Could you imagine? Because uh, it's a thing with movies these days, because the effects are often added afterwards, where you're just kind of squirming around. And uh, if you ever watch the behind-the-scenes footage, it's literally just a bunch of dudes in blue suits grabbing his arms yeah. and, like, pulling him backwards. <laughs> And then they put that gross thing in there and then like you go see it for the first time. I that's a gotta be surreal. Yikes. Yeah. Welcome to modern movie making. (laughs) Oh man. But he's a trooper. He was he's wonderful. He's a he's quite the character actor, I wanna say. When he's not doing mocha, he's very much a character actor. He disappears into the roles that he plays, whether it's for mocap or for something like this. But he's an amazing actor just a, across the board. Uh, and this is something, cause I, I kind of get the sense that poor Andy, when it comes to like being recognized for his work, kind of gets treated like a prop. The people who work with him certainly don't. Like when he did Caesar for the Planet of the Apes, the recent Planet of the yeah. Apes film. Yeah, which I have I to thought, believe his work in this is what got him that. Plus, oh, it, absolutely. plus it was I mean, Weta. It, it was Weta. It was the same thing. I mean, he was Snoke twice uh, in the, the Star Wars sequels. Yeah, but so. that was after he, Planet yeah, of the Apes. That was after Planet of the Apes, and at least after a couple of them. Yeah. But I, I think that for his role, I mean, honestly, for his role as Caesar, 
I think the dude, I don't really care about the Oscars, but I think he should have gotten something, like a nomination. He should get some sort of a special Oscar because, at some point. Because they've done that for some people. Get, because he falls into that weird line, I think, that some people would, would like to draw between, are you a special effect or are you an actor? And the answer is 200% the dude's an actor, but his performance is being enhanced or covered up, but not muted in any way. By It's basically, it's, it's putting someone in makeup or a suit, as you said. He really deserves a lot more credit than he gets because the, he's not just a funny guy with dots on his face and he's not just the guy running around in the green, the green screen <laughs> carrying a Barbie. You know, it's funny to look at, but it, it makes absolute magic. I think his best role acting-wise has been Caesar. I think his most iconic role will always be Gollum, but my personal favorite is Kong. Yeah. Of his. He's- He's the kind of actor who, you know, like a like a Ron Perlman or the, the I'm trying to remember the the guy's name. The he was in Doug, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Yeah, thank you. Anyway, the, <laughs> yes, Doug Jones. They love taking on roles where they can disappear into makeup. Now they have and, found and, their and, and in Andy Serkis's sure. case, it's not so much makeup as it is the mocap special effects of it. That they just they revel in that. There aren't very many actors who are willing to do that. There are actors who will put up with it for a role, but they aren't necessarily the kinds of guys who are going to be all about that. I think they do deserve a level, of, you know, a special kind of recognition for what they do. Yeah. Because Gollum would not be Gollum without Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis no, embodied no. that character more so than I think anybody else. I'm sure Tolkien himself would have, and you got to understand, you're talking to somebody for whom Lord of the Rings is his all-time favorite book, okay? Yes, you have good taste. (laughs) Yes, I do believe, you know, as many issues as Tolkien himself would have had with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films, I think he would have been very happy with Andy Serkis's Gollum. I I think so. I think that's a fair way to say it. I truly it. it's speculation on my part, yes, but I do think he would be happy. As somebody who has a, a you know, love of watching movies where a character, where, you know, you have a monster or something like that, or a character that's not quite human, a lot of those guys back in the day, they had to fight to get their names on the screen. You know what I like mean? Like Rick Baker. Up and, like Rick Baker. Like, uh, I mean, a lot of those characters. Same thing with voice artists. I mean, I could talk endlessly about how hard Mel Blanc had to fight to get his name on the Warner Brothers cartoons. These days, you're, we're seeing a lot more respect for that. And I see that happening more with people like Andy Serkis because I think there's there's kind of this weird, where do you put that person? What category do they fall into? They're actors. They're not suit yeah. performers. They're not makeup monster guys. They're actors. They're, they're a- Haruo Nakajima was an actor. Yes. You know what I mean? The that's dude why, was an actor. That's why, even though it was a tiny recognition, and I'm not all that excited about the Oscars anymore, but I was very happy mm-hmm. to hear yeah. that he was included in their tribute last year. Nakajima yes, was. Uh, that was like that is I watched that it, is yeah. wonderful, especially considering I don't think he was ever in an American film. It was all Japanese. I don't, I don't believe so. I think um, it, it was almost one yeah. of those things where it's like, okay, we put Godzilla on the Walk of Fame. This guy was Godzilla. We need to acknowledge yeah. that. You know, these guys they know that their skills are very unique, and that's the thing about Andy is again, I, if anyone out there hasn't seen the like the Blu-ray and the DVD bonus features for Kong 05, like you watch all of it because it's all good, but skip to the parts with Andy talking about Kong and how he, like we were talking about earlier, paid to, to like to go to Rwanda His and just chill money. with the gorillas. He didn't even tell Jackson and everybody. They're just like, no. hey, no. where's Andy? 
Uh, we don't know. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. They, they called him and they said, hey, Andy totally got on a plane and he's chilling with the gorillas. He's uh, trying to audition for the role of Carl Denham. Like, <laughs> the dude took a camera and got too close to the, mon- the, the monsters and he pulled a Carl Denham. That's straight up what he did. Talk about taking a role seriously like holy mackerel yeah. and it pays off yeah it pays and off like i it. said he comes from a caliber of actor but that's what they do nakajima did that ron perlman did that doug jones did that they, they took these roles seriously they they didn't just think of themselves oh i'm just the guy in the suit oh i'm just a special effect no yeah you're an actor yeah you're doing Same thing with i, the, mean, yeah. I mean look at the three guys who did <laughs> mocap Ghidorah. <laughs> and, and <laughs> i King love those the guys Monsters. they were just having fun <laughs> They were having so much fun together. I love watching footage of them doing their scenes. And you, you they're, can tell, they're amazing. I mean, you can tell they were taking it seriously. And they're like, yes, I am this head and I have this personality. I am this head and I am this, I have this personality. And I am Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Kevin. Oh, the good old Kevin memes. The Kevin memes have been kind of dying off a little bit. I miss those. Those are, those are always good for a chuckle. <laughs> hey, I don't need the memes. Kevin is on the island. He's a little harder oh, to oh, him. Right. And, uh, Ghidorah's a little harder to control compared to a lot of the other monsters. But <laughs> I was going to say, I'm assuming he's not just a head. Now. He's not just a, a rotting head. No. <laughs> well, no, that, well that, that's kind of Kevin 2, I guess you could say. Kevin 2.0. Yeah, that's Kevin a good point. That's a good point. I don't know. With the, with the amount of fights Ghidorah's been in, he, he might be on like 10 I was gonna say, on all he, three of them. Yeah. But. <laughs> there, might be a, there might be a lot of rotting Kevin heads <laughs> laying around for, for Charles Dance to fish out of the water. You never know. <laughs> yeah, we don't let him on the island. We, we heard, about what, oh, happened I, in, we heard been, about what happened in China. Yeah, he's not coming back. I, he tightened up <laughs> security. I mean, circuitors already tight because of the key locks, but. <laughs> That's true. You don't want to mess with them. Man, we've just been talking about the actors and the characters, and we've already covered a lot of other aspects of this movie. But I want to take a little bit of time to address the complaints about this movie. I want to get at some of them. Am I going to sit here and say this is a perfect movie? No, because no movie is perfect. Although I will admit that with the most recent viewing, I'm writing so high on the movie right now that I don't really want to say anything terribly negative about it. We'll at least try to address some of the things people have said. One of which being people say it's too long. That's the big one. That's the, that big, the big one. The as big, you pointed out, we, it's twice yeah. as long as the original movie. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Very much so. It is long, but it doesn't feel long. When we were watching it tonight, I'm like, it was three hours and 20 minutes, and it felt like it just went by. I mean, I was double checking the timestamp. Like when the, the characters got to Skull Island, I thought, how long did it take to get there? That took 45 minutes, and it went by like that. <laughs> Yeah, like snap. It was just, it it flows so well. And this is, to me, the key to making a long movie that is also a good movie. And that is to pace it to the point where it's moving so naturally and organically. It's not rushing and it's not overly slow. Things are happening at just the right pace so that by the time you hit three and a half hours and you've officially crossed what what I like to call the Kurosawa threshold, (laughs) <laughs> and you're, you're, <laughs> you, you've officially, yeah. <laughs> Trademark That's that a good one. right like now. You, Trademark I will, that the first right threshold. I will put that on a t-shirt <laughs> right, right next. Yeah. I got, I got to, I got to get, get on that one. But once, once you've gotten past the point of no return, 
three and a half ish hours once you've reached seven samurai level and you've gotten to that point and the movie is either almost over or is over and it feels like you haven't been sitting on your butt for three and a half hours then you have crafted a very well done movie just in terms of how the length feels because there are some movies that are long and you can feel that length just kind of sitting on you. One of those films, this is actually kind of interesting, this is interesting because of the film we're talking about, is the 1976 Kong, at least for me. which for you feels long. It's not a very long, yeah, it's not a very, it's not as nearly as long as this Two hours, or maybe a little little over two hours, hours, yeah, Yeah. something like that. It's two hours plus, uh, if memory serves, and uh, at least the the normal version and not the super long one that (laughs) I'd like to see one day. But uh, anyway, I have connections. Yeah, I'm interested. (laughs) Interested. That film to me, at least to me, like the first time I saw it, I didn't, the the length of it didn't, I didn't notice, but I saw it on the big screen a few years ago, around the time they captured Kong and he has a scene in the oil, the oil tanker. I, I remember looking at my watch and thinking, is this movie still happening? I feel like I've been sitting here for five hours and that might've just been me in that moment because I've, I've watched it since it's like it alternates. So the time after that, I watched it and the length didn't bother me. And then I watched it again and I was like, this feels a little long, you know, not necessarily to the detriment of the film, but I did notice that the, the 1976 Kong feels longer to me than this one does even though peter jackson's got him beat by like an hour hour and a half (laughs) yeah there's there's another movie in there somewhere that's a whole other movie it's really really impressive because that's how you pace a film and it also another good way to tell is that when it's over even though you've been sitting there for three and a half hours you're still kind of bummed that it ended um because you kind of want to i've experienced this a lot in books actually because i mean i'm a writer so I'm i'm a big reader and one of my favorite books ever on planet earth is to kill a mockingbird i adore that book and the first fantastic fantastic book and the first time i read it because remember this is a book that is 200 percent about its characters and getting you interested in what they're doing and it's you know it's nothing it's not like they're saving the universe it's just a couple it's it's kids you know with a haunted house next door and they're living through some horribly you know tragically racist nonsense that was part of the period and that's hard to read but it's really really a fascinating story when that book ended, I was heartbroken because I wanted to spend more time with those characters. And I'd been reading it. I mean, it's not a super long book. It's not a long book at all, but it was one of those books that I, I read in high school, but they paced us. So it took us like four times as long as it would have normally taken me to read it for all of my class to read it. Yeah. And I'd, I'd gotten burned because I finished Huck Finn in like a week. <laughs> and uh, then we started taking quizzes on it. And I was like, oh boy, I probably should reread this but i was really sad when i got to the last page of to kill a mockingbird because i wanted to just spend another summer with those characters at the end of this film it's different because they've reached a natural story wise and dramatic wise ending point whatever happens after ann and jack hug on top of the, the building is irrelevant we don't need to know that and kong is gone so there's no reason to continue the story after that but the fact that it was over that i felt like it had gone fast yeah there's something to that. There's yeah. something about the storytelling in that makes you feel like that that is insanely impressive. Yeah. The thing that impresses me, and I wish I, I had the text of it with me, but I remember reading the Roger Ebert review of this movie, and he himself said, this movie's too long, but it's too long because it gives you a lot of really good stuff. So it's like complaining that you're getting too much candy. That might be the wrong analogy. I could be misremembering that. Good idea, Jimmy. You track that down. 
put it in your notes. <laughs> That's many, right. many notes you're going to have for this episode. This is going to be a, sorry, Jimbo, this is going to be a long, a uh, lot of note taking for this one. He says he's not looking forward to it. <laughs> it'll Too be bad. As long, it'll be as long as the movie. <laughs> well, probably. <laughs> but but was, anyway, yeah, but that was, way, that was uh, the a, point he yeah. was getting. Does the T-Rex fight yeah. go on for a really long time? Is it a little bit overblown? Yeah, we went from one T-Rex to three, and <laughs> that fight goes on for probably, what, 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> with maybe, three maybe T-Rexes long. that are as vicious and determined to eat Anne as any of the sharks are with any human beings <laughs> in Sharknado. Because that is the astonishing is thing. True. The sharks are, are flying around in a tornado, and still, they can only think about eating things. <laughs> It's, it's a, not a bad comparison. It's a, there, you, I, I know, you I, I know. There are probably people who are freaking out right now. I think Jimmy is biting his tongue really hard right now. I can see him in the booth right now. He's biting his tongue to the point that it's bleeding, <laughs> proverbially speaking. That I just compared this movie to Sharknado. <laughs> I was going to say, you've just compared the asylum to Peter Jackson. Congratulations. (laughs) Let's be honest. Peter Jackson was making asylum movies, you know, kind of movies at one point. Oh, yeah. Like I said, Jackson wanted to make sure that there were story beats that were in there. Yeah, that T-Rex fight goes on for a long time, but it's building character throughout the whole thing. Could he have done that with a shorter action sequence? Most definitely. Does it hurt? Does it it hurt hurt that it's long? (laughs) No. More T-Rex fighting? No, it's, yeah, I'd say that's, that's fine. I don't think we're, like, we're not trying to, if people out there who are listening may not, you know, like the film or do like it but don't appreciate how long it is. Like, we're not going to try to change your mind or anything, but there are some people that don't enjoy longer movies, and that's fine. Yeah. You know? That's, yeah. It's, it's, it's all it astonishes me, yeah. Brian Scherchel, who I used to podcast with back on Kaiju Vision Radio, said that he's astonished that people say they don't want to sit through a three-hour movie, but they'll binge eight episodes of a Netflix show. He's got a good point. Yeah, he's got he a, has good, a good point. Nice. He also, weirdly yeah. enough, hadn't seen the Peter Jackson Kong until I told him he should watch it during the planning phases for that podcast. And then after he had seen it, he came back to me and he said, this is one of the greatest epics I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, he's, he actually, he's told me that too, that he just adores that film. And he, I mean, I can't, I can't, he's, yep, I agree. I'm, I'm, like, I'm in the, I almost I'm in wanted the same to tell boat. him, welcome to the club. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those movies that I, I hope more people will discover later on because, you know, yeah. uh, him finding it, you know, many years after it's come out, that's really cool to me because I like hearing people say, hey, I've just seen this film, this film or that film, and I had no idea that it was this cool, and now I've seen it, and I really, really love it. Like, I love reading stuff about that. It doesn't matter what movie it is, but that, yeah. that's always well, cool to me. Well, and I'm going to tell you right now, listeners... My connections over in the States tell me that you can buy the ultimate edition of this movie with both a theatrical and extended cut and more special features than you'll know what to do with on Blu-ray for $5 at Walmart. $5 and you are going to have hours upon hours of things to go through. That will be some of the best $5 you will ever spend as a Kaiju fan. I'm just saying. I agree. I, I was just recently in a Walmart. It's that and a, a bunch of Godzilla's 2014s clogging it up. Uh, so it, there's, there's a lot in there, but yeah. dude, Give $5. Home. 
Give them a home. Five, yeah, give them, a, give them a home. Five dollars for a three and a half hour movie plus the theatrical version if you'd rather watch a slightly shorter version. And I don't know, maybe like 46 straight hours of bonus features. It's ridiculous. Like it's, it's ridiculous, but it's so worth it. Yeah, I'm, I'm holding my personal copy of it right here. It's a 13. <laughs> yep. And then there's one other big objection people have had to this movie that doesn't really fall under the it's too long umbrella. You know, when before people were saying like, you know, it's too long. We don't need a brontosaurus stampede, even though there was supposed to be a brontosaurus stampede in Son of Kong that Wilson Bryan wanted to do, but they told him no because money and time, I think as well. That was just Jackson again being a fanboy. But the scene in question is, I guess you could call it the ice skating scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, paid attention to it and i remember when the movie first came out i heard people talking about how that seems corny they they didn't really like it i thought okay i'm gonna pay attention to it when we watch it today and you know what i wasn't bothered maybe i'm weird but i wasn't bothered i felt like it was earned you can put something in a movie that in another context may have been corny but you can earn it and i think this movie earned it i think so too i think it's actually one of my favorite scenes i think i think it's gorgeous I think it's just it's it's also at the right point in the story for that to happen because Kong has just gone on his rampage and he needed a moment. He needed one last happy moment because up on top of the building when they're looking at the sun is kind of a peaceful moment. But this was just pure weird together. It was like seeing him slough off the last little bit of that loneliness that he had because loneliness is such an important part of the character this version of the character the the entire sequence where she walks to him and she's backlit oh that is a gorgeous scene it's just like it gets the waterworks going because in that moment being lonely is something that everyone can sympathize with to some extent everyone who has felt lonely at some point in their life would like to look over their shoulder and see someone backlit walking towards them. It doesn't matter who that person (laughs) is in in your life. It could be, could be anyone or anything that just saves you from being a lonely, lonely person or an ape in this case. Mm -hmm. But that moment, like you said, earned, absolutely earned. There needed to be a nice, quiet, peaceful moment where they were just together and Kong, maybe for the first time since losing his family is himself. Yes. He doesn't have to fight. Uh, he doesn't have to defend himself. He's not, you know, an yeah, insane but, animal. Yeah, which is because that's the, the interesting thing in this one. And, it, and it's this presentation's carried over into Skull Island as well. This is a battle-hardened Kong. In fact, yeah, the earlier is, designs for Kong in this movie, they actually were going to make him even more battle-hardened. Like, his, uh, you can tell his, his jaw's a little, you know, a little out of joint. You know, it, his jaw got broken and it didn't heal quite right. So he has a little bit of a snaggle tooth that actually used to be a lot more pronounced in earlier designs. So yeah, they were they, really emphasizing be- <laughs> that. And then in Skull Island, you know, he's covered in scars and things like that. So they, they kept that. There's a carrier. It's a, there. it's a cool visual indication of just what he's been through without going and showing you how he got all of those things. It's visual storytelling and it's simple, but it's really effective. And the fact that, I mean, this Kong has, we see him get a lot of his wounds, but he's got scarification all over his face. He's got his little snaggle tooth, which I think is cute, <laughs> but he's just an interesting looking version. And you can tell he's been through the worst of it. He's yeah. gotten through all, all of this bad stuff, but his soul doesn't look like that, right? He's no. He is not his battle wounds. He is not his scars. He is not his physical trauma. And so you can almost see in the scene where he pounds the cab and Jack gets knocked out and then his face starts to soften as he looks over and sees Anne. It's almost like the wounds are melting off too. It's the, uh, it's it, her presence that uh-huh. really does it. 
they don't exactly. make a huge deal out of the Beauty and the Beast aspects of the film. That I mean, my gosh, they were name dropping Beauty and the Beast constantly in the thirty three version. Yeah, it was not subtle. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> subtle. <laughs> in this one, it's subtle because you notice that Anne has this amazing calming effect on him. I think and it's that, absolutely yeah. fantastic. That it is. You know, it, it's yeah. it's a very traditional way of doing it. The reason why the beauty and the beast story has such resonance, such mythic resonance is because as the one YouTuber I follow put it, the heroine's journey is to tame the masculine. And that's what happens here. If you look at Kong as this masculine figure, which we've talked about, she's taming it. She is not making Kong cease to be masculine, but she is calming him and she is helping him to channel that. So he is not just unbridled rage. That entire part of her effect on him, that part of the story, I think culminates in the ice pond scene. I think that that's where the full effect that she's had on him is brought to fruition. That actually reminds me of something kind of interesting because it makes me think of how he's affected her as well. Because that scene is also about her and the connection that she's formed with Kong. Many years ago, I I happened to see this film on television. They were playing it on TV. And it was one of those weird things where there were little fun facts popping up at the bottom of the screen every couple of scenes. It was cool, but it was a little annoying. But some of the fun facts just made no sense. Towards the end of the film, one popped up that said Anne was suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. And that was why she liked Kong. Exactly. And it popped up at the bottom. It's like, Anne is very clearly demonstrating what is called Stockholm Syndrome. And I looked at the screen and I had to like smack my head a couple of times. And I thought, what? I mean, if you were to watch the film from that angle, it ruins the whole thing. But that's not the point of the story. She's not (laughs) forming some kind of attachment to her captor. And this scene at the ice pond really just takes any kind of idea that she might have, like that you could read that into the film, which is nonsense. And just kind of finally puts a nail in that coffin because she's there because she wants to be there. He's with her because he wants to be with her. And again, like we said, it's not romantic. It's not sexual. It's undefined. It's a relationship. It's a bond between, and this is something that Naomi Watts said herself, between two souls, her souls and Kong. And it's in this moment on the ice pond that, you can really see the souls of both of them, especially Kong. And so I'd argue, and this is actually interesting because it's a scene that when they were shooting it, they weren't sure if it was too corny to put in the movie. They shot it anyway because Peter said, let's shoot it and see what happens. You know, there's nothing funnier than seeing footage of Andy Serkis on like a little scooter spinning <laughs> while holding holding a Barbie. Uh, but I think that's, that's probably where some of the trepidation came from. They thought this might be a little too much but when they ended up putting the sequence into the film it was the perfect moment for a little bit of levity not comic relief or anything like that but it lightened everything a little bit you almost believe that it could be okay you know it's not going to be but you don't care in the moment because you're in there you needed to be there needed to be this moment of calm this moment of peace yeah where you can feel like yeah like you said everything's gonna be okay Everything's okay. And that makes the ending even okay. I think if that scene had been taken out and it had just been from even the scene of him seeing Anne backlit, picking her up, it's still not enough. Yeah, I think the scene needed to be in there. I really do. And I think if you you had ripped it out of context, it would have seemed silly. Yeah. It would have been very silly, honestly. Very much. Very much. But in that context, like you said, it's earned. I think so. It is an earned moment for sure. Yeah. 
Sorry, those are really detractors. the big things. <laughs> yeah, those, those are really the big things that people have taken issue with: length and all the stuff that falls under that, and then yeah. a couple of sequences here and there, especially the ice pond. We're not going to try to convince you you're somehow wrong for having an opinion, but for my money, these things really don't bother me. I like long movies when they're done well. This one, I think, is done exceptionally well. Uh, I think that this particular sequence was very deserving of being in the film. I don't nitpick movies really when I watch them, so I can I don't really have any outstanding issues with this film at all. I just love it. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of love, I mean, this isn't a detractor, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the score because I've talked about the score in oh, pretty yeah. much every episode I've done on a Kong film. Monster movies in general, I think, tend to really kind of need a strong score because it, it helps a lot. And when it comes to Kong, anyone who scores a Kong film will be standing on the shoulders of a giant because Max Steiner. Yeah, we talked about it earlier because they recycle yeah, I mean, some of his music and it's fantastic yeah, how they recontextualize it. Yeah, talking about Steiner isn't the point of our conversation here, but needless yeah. to say, the man. Uh, no, but yeah, what we're, we're talking yeah. about, there have been some fantastic composers yeah. that have worked on a Kong, Max Steiner, yeah, I mean, Akira Fukabe, John Barry, John Barry. I, I will tell oh you, just gosh, like I John said, in, I just like I said in that episode, yeah. I don't think the 76 movie rises to nearly the same level as 33, but the score does. <laughs> so James Newton Howard, the composer for, for PJ's version had a lot to live up to because he was coming off of Steiner creating feature length film scoring, essentially John Barry, creating this hugely epic, romantic, sweeping symphonic score. Um, and so he had to come in and basically say, okay, we're going to do this a third time. I think he knocked it out of the park. Um, oh, he did. His- there were points where I was getting some shades of Danny Elfman here on occasion. It really felt like Lord of the Rings, which is why I was surprised to find out when I looked into this, it's not the same composer, though they have weirdly similar names. <laughs> that probably yeah, didn't help. Yeah, they're both Howard. They're yeah, both Howard. didn't help. <laughs> I feel like it takes some of the best elements from both John Barry and Max Steiner and kind of mixes them together. But then again, the Kong in this is very much, even Peter Jackson said he intended his Kong to be an interesting melding of those two incarnations. The savagery of the 33 Kong and the more romanticized version from 76. And this one feels very much the same way. It has a lot of that adventure elements to the music while also being very good at evoking emotion for those scenes between Anne and Kong and I think it really elevates those scenes. I mean the performances are already great. The the special effects are great but the music my gosh it sells it so much. I think it's one of the honestly one of the best film scores from the last 15-20 years James Newton Howard gives Kong his own motif throughout the film that develops, which is a lot like what Max Steiner did. Very different kind of music, but Kong has a da 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 theme that progresses with him through the music, through the musical score. Even music that only appears in one scene and isn't like a character theme is memorable. This is a soundtrack that I actually use quite a lot. lot. Like I listen to it when I do art and when I write. I used Mm -hmm. to sculpt the soundtrack in school. Just so good and it's and it's you said emotional it's very emotional in all the best ways i don't know if i've made this clear but i really like this score yes (laughs) it is fantastic i can't say that enough that's pretty much all we can say about it it's a wonderful soundtrack absolutely wonderful soundtrack and needs to be counted amongst the great soundtracks that have accompanied king kong Say what you want about the varying quality of his movies. Almost all the time, he has great music. I mean, it's (laughs) true. I mean, even great composers. 
before we move on to our next segment, I did want to bring up a couple of fun little facts. I can't. I should have brought this up sooner because we were talking about Dead Alive earlier. But there's a reference right. to it. I tried looking for it, but I didn't spot it. It's a little hard to see. There's an Easter it's egg there. to that movie yeah. because the thing that causes the zombie outbreak in that ridiculous film is called a Sumatran rat monkey. And there is a cage in the hold of the venture <laughs> that has a sign on it that says Sumatran rat monkey, which is kind of a double reference because yes, it is in it Dead is. Alive, the Sumatran rat monkey at the beginning of the movie is found on Skull Island. It might actually even be a triple reference because in Peter Jackson's original outline for Kong, when he was originally supposed to direct it back in 1996, the plot actually involved Carl and Anne and Jack and everyone going to Sumatra to find Kong. Mm -hmm. Mind blown. So it's a triple reference. I mean, you can tell the dude, he's a nerd. (laughs) I mean, it begs the question, and I don't think I want to go there. Is Dead Alive set in the same universe? Hmm. I would have preferred the April Fool's gag sequels got made for this because let me tell you, because that was a thing on (laughs) April Fool's Day, they put out fake trailers for what would have been sequels to this movie because it was, they were saying it was going to be a trilogy. I'm like, I want these movies to be real. I still want them to be real because it would have, it would have been ridiculous, but it would have been amazing because it would have been, it would have been great. It would have been, well, I can't remember if it was supposed to be a resurrected Kong or a second Kong or a Kiko son of Kong thing. They would have fast forwarded 10 years to World War II and it would have been Kong fighting Nazis. And I'm like, yes, yes. yes. I would have taken one a hundred times. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it was, it was the son of Kong. It was, they actually took the Kong model and bleached him white. And uh, oh, it was such, it was so elaborate and so wonderful. It was a pretty good ape rule fools joke. Sorry, couldn't resist. That was a good one. But uh, the other thing, and I just wanted to throw this out here, fun little thing I noticed. I got a, an interesting vibe when we, uh, when we went to the theater where they were showing off Kong, and I realized this isn't what it is, and yeah, just theaters in general in this era were designed this way. But I started thinking back to my days in Indiana before I came here to the island. I was living in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they have a theater in downtown Fort Wayne called The Embassy. And that theater reminded me a lot of The Embassy. It's a lot bigger than the embassy, but still. <laughs> it's a very classic sort of theater, which makes sense because we're now going to talk about some classic theater in our next segment. All righty. As I was saying earlier, I wanted the Toku topic for this episode to focus on something that was unique to this movie. I had already mentioned before that... Unlike in the 33 film, the depression is clearly going on in this. They don't go out of their way to hide it. But I already spent two episodes in both episode two and episode four with Kong 33 and Son of Kong going over different aspects of the depression. So I was thinking to myself, what's unique to this one that I could latch onto and do something like that? And then I realized vaudeville and Darrow in this movie is a vaudeville actress, a vaudeville performer. This is perfect. It feeds in thematically with the movie because, you know, spoiler warning, we'll get into the history of it, but vaudeville was all but dead at this point. It was yeah, just gone <laughs> by the time you got to 1933. Probably and it was being killed. Was struggling. It, yeah, it was, yeah, it was struggling and it was, it was getting killed by radio and film at that point. That, that had completely overtaken it as the popular entertainment of the day. 
So it was the end of an era. So you, when you're getting that, when you have Anne at the beginning of this movie and, you know, she's performing vaudeville and all the actors, like we talked about before, they're saying like, you know, all this stuff is, is dying. It's, go, it's going away. And then the theater gets shut down. And then they turned it, they were saying they were going to turn it into something else, weren't they? It wasn't a vaudeville theater anymore, I think. Were they, was it supposed to be a movie theater after that? I, I, I don't quite remember, but they were covering up the sign, saying that it was... They were covering up the sign. I don't know if it was, like, completely implicitly stated, but I want to say it was probably being converted into a movie palace. Yeah, something like that. And that was very much what was going on at the time. So you have this movie that is starting with this dying art form at this point in history. And Anne has to find a new thing to do. And then she, what does she do? She tries to get work doing what was the up and coming new entertainment of the day, which was film. It's very much showing a transition in pop culture at this point. Not to mention uh, briefly highlighting a dying world in a way. And then one, yes. you know, like what, what do you have to do to escape that dying world? Yeah. Which now that I think about it, they talk about it a little bit. You know, the, the someone has this offhand remark about how Skull Island is the last blank spot on the map. And there's talk about how there's no more mystery anymore in the world. Because this really was kind of the last time in history where there were still uncharted pieces of the globe. And yeah, that it, sense of adventure was all but, and discovery was waning. Just <laughs> probably why. I mean, that's the guys who are making the movie are looking at Jack like, Jack Black. I did it again. Yeah, he they're did it again. <laughs> Denim. They're, they're looking. They're, I know. They're looking at him like, I want to go to this island, this uncharted island and shoot my movie. They're looking at him like he's insane. He might be, but that doesn't seem like you're supposed to shoot on the back lot. You want to go adventuring? That's not what we do. That's not what making movies is about. There's a lot of clashing going on in this film. Carl wants to go on an adventure to make his movie. So he goes out. And then, of course, Kong ends up out of his dying world and into the world where he actually does meet his fate. And then the same thing happens to Anne. She has, she's forced out of her familiar world and has to try to find a way to survive outside of that. And I find that very thematically interesting. And as yes. you say, vaudeville pops up in the film on multiple occasions as a kind of binding agent between her and Kong. It's used in the story. Yeah. When I was originally planning out this podcast, I was thinking back on it. I was like, okay, I know it's at the beginning. And then the more I thought about it, like, wait a minute, she uses those vaudeville skills later on, as we've already discussed to keep Kong from killing her. And then it becomes the means by which she bonds with him. I love the scene where she starts juggling again, not because she's trying to save her life, but because it's almost like her little way of saying, I'm sorry. And exactly. he's ignoring her. Doesn't really, <laughs> you know, because he's probably still angry, you know, and nearly got killed by the T-Rexes and you're trying to say you're sorry. And then all that happens, he just opens up his hand and lets her crawl in. It's a, it's wonderful, a beautiful little moment. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful, good. Beautiful. It becomes an element. It's not a prominent element, but then again, the depression wasn't a prominent element in the original 33 yeah. film. Exactly. So we're talking, about, we're, talking about, yeah, but we're, we were kind of starting at the end there. We're going to talk about, you know, it was dying at this point or all but dead. Vaudeville is actually something that had, it came about, there's a lot of stuff that was precursors to it in the 19th century. Things like minstrel shows and all of that. The word itself, vaudeville, is actually French. One potential origin for the name vaudeville is it comes from a French term that means variety because it was intended to be variety entertainment. And, and that's a good way of describing mm -hmm. vaudeville in general because it was pretty much everything across the board. It was basically a synonym for entertainment. You could sing, you could dance, 
You could tell jokes. You could do tricks. I mean, you could you could juggle. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah, could have is, tigers jump through hoops. Yeah, the montage of performers that we see at the beginning of this film is very indicative of the kinds of things that you would have seen in there. And those, weirdly enough, those are actual vaudeville performers. There's kind of a yes, there's a small are. contingent of people who still do vaudeville style entertainment. And those were actual people. They auditioned. There's a whole special feature on the Blu-ray that shows them auditioning for those little it's bits. A, and, it, and it actually shows, because in the movie, you get it in montage form, where it's maybe two seconds of each act. But they filmed their whole act. Each performer got an act. So again, if you go to Walmart, get the $5 Blu-ray. Yes. Uh, you can see those whole, the guy lifting up the table in his mouth, the guy who juggles apples and eats them at the same time. You get to see all of those acts unedited, and that is a really good snapshot, if you're at all interested in vaudeville, of what it was about. It's, the only thing they didn't have was the tiger jumping through the flaming hoop. Yeah, yeah. But, well, you know. that and blackface, because blackface was yeah, a part of vaudeville. I mean, they hey, thankfully Al, left yeah. that out. <laughs> Thank goodness, because, I mean, Al Jolson did sing the opening theme song. Yeah, <laughs> although, from what I was seeing, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, from what I was seeing in, in my research, blackface by about the, like the 1920s was fading out anyway so <laughs> good yeah <laughs> i hope no one was sad about that probably not because probably that not. Needed, i would hope that that needed to die <laughs> yeah although interestingly awesome. again we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit vaudeville was also despite things like that and interestingly from what i was reading there were actual black people who were doing actual blackface performances which is all kinds of weird yeah But the other interesting aspect of vaudeville is that there were a lot of minorities and immigrants who performed or managed this sort of stuff because of how prominent it was. In a lot of ways for them, it was just the next step in their journey of coming to the United States because a lot of their traditions and their, you know, their performance traditions and culture went along with them into that black people, the Irish Jews, there were a lot of them that found a place in, in, in this vaudeville. Film, yeah. so, in this film set in New York, which is very much a mixture of all of those different oh, yeah. cultures coming into one. Yeah, so I've, I've, this, I've yeah. been to New York city. I went to New York city when I was in college, I've been to times square, all the stuff yeah. they were show, showing in times square. I'm still astonished that times square looked like that in the thirties, but <laughs> yeah, but even in, <laughs> even in the 33 Kong, it looked like that. New York very much is the world in microcosm. Comparatively speaking, yeah, New York's a giant city, which is probably a big reason why vaudeville had such variety in it, you know, going back to that word. Vaudeville was originally intended to be comedy without, this is interesting, comedy without psychological or moral intentions Mm -hmm. based on a comical situation. When I read that, I thought, so it's the original sitcom? Is that what... (laughs) Is that what this it's is? It's true. I mean, that's what it was. Complete yep. with the... <laughs> but it also says that, that, you know, there were there was oh, dramatic yeah. composition, light poetry, songs, ballet. You know, you talked about there were dancers and things like that. It was really popular yeah. in the United States and in Canada, the birth of vaudeville official. Because like I said, there was a lot of stuff that preceded it in Europe and in the United States as well. But the actual birth of vaudeville was in 1881 october 24th 1981 at new york's 14th street theater thanks to a guy named tony pastor i think that's how you say it It looks like pastor yeah that's that's how you say it yeah Yeah. uh, and he was one of the first really prominent figures he founded a lot of vaudeville theaters he managed a lot of them interestingly he was a devout catholic (laughs) 
Yes, he was. Yeah, that was, that <laughs> so, was interesting. <laughs> even though he had already known that a lot of stuff that became vaudeville and even into his work on it, vaudeville was known for being, uh, shall we say, body? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> a little uh, sexier than he <laughs> would normally want it to be. So he uh, yeah, he actually <laughs> imposed a fair amount of rules. He told people they couldn't swear and the, you know, nudie bits in <laughs> yeah. any of the performances. He called it polite vaudeville. So it was... He wanted it to be so he wanted because he wanted it to be open to families and to and to women and you know he wanted to broaden its audience and I very he wanted he wanted to make it accessible because the more people you can get into your theater then the better you're going to do and the better your circuit's going to perform right so it made sense from a business perspective but you know it's. It's just, it's just good business. Yeah. And it's interesting. And I think he definitely knew that it was coming because another potential origin for the name vaudeville was from uh, a French name. I may be butchering it. I say, I apologize every time I try to say Japanese words on here. So I'm going to apologize for the French too, which is funny because my surname (laughs) is French, but uh, Val de Vere, which was in reference to the Vere River Valley in English. And it was known for body drinking songs. (laughs) Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah. So he had to, he had to clean it up a little bit. <laughs> to and he say did. The least. And he but did a, he did a darn, darn good job. He did. And it exploded. It, uh, it by the time you got to the early 1900s, there were these two guys, BF Keith and EF Albie. Interesting sounding initials there, EF and BF. And one yep. <laughs> of whom, E.F. Albee, was actually the adoptive grandfather of the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Edward Albee. And they started a chain oh. of vaudeville houses in Boston, and they spread all over the country. So as I was saying, they ended up you know, having a whole slew of these things, a whole circuit of them across the country. In 1919, there was another circuit called the Orpheum Circuit that had 45 vaudeville theaters in 36 cities in the U.S. and Canada. There was another circuit run by a guy named Alexander Pantagas. Again, maybe saying the name wrong. And he owned 30 of them and controlled 60 more in the U.S. and Canada through management contracts. That's impressive. It was a huge, booming thing. We're talking about a very light, fluffy, enjoyable art form that was in prominence before the Depression. You'd think that in the Depression, people would have been interested in seeing, you know, light, fluffy things to take their minds off of things, but it didn't make it that far. But as you know, the 1920s, it was just everywhere. Yeah, and the, it was starting to wane in the 20s, but certainly yeah. before then, the early 20th century, it was the place to go to. If you weren't going to see stage plays or something like that, you were probably going to a vaudeville show. And it was so varied. It's not like I'm going to go listen to this music. If you went to vaudeville, there was just about as much chance of seeing somebody do comedy, somebody mm-hmm. dancing, somebody doing some kind of like circus stunt. You know what I mean? I Whatever I think of uh, vaudeville, I think of two things. I think of uh, Looney Tunes and Singing in the Rain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because, because the beginning of Singing in the Rain, when... <laughs> Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor are singing Fit as a Fiddle and Ready for Love in their pinstripe suits with the hats. And there's an earlier shot where two canes come out and grab them around the neck and drag them off stage. That's what I always think of when I think of vaudeville. I think of people on stage doing something dressed all nice and some kind of performance. And then a cane drags them off stage. Yes. 
there's a Looney Tunes episode. I want to say it's called Showbiz Bunny that explains Bugs Bunny's origins. It explains how when he was young, he got his start on the vaude- on the vaudeville circuit. And you see him in a chorus line singing and you see him trying to bust out on his own. And then he fails. And then Elmer Fudd, who is literally identified as a, uh, quote, big vaudeville star and quote in the episode, sees Bugs and thinks he has potential and they go on the circuit and you see them on the train. And so that that's always what I what I think of. But it's pretty accurate. It's just people would travel and people with certain talents would kind of coalesce into different groups. It was amazing that it didn't last longer. Yeah, uh, here I found some, I was digging through my notes. I found a couple more facts going along with what we were talking about. So yeah, Tony Pastor, devout Catholic, was often backstage praying. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, and and also uh, Benjamin Franklin Keith, the you know, BF Keith, his wife and business partner, also fervent Catholic. <laughs> it's interesting that <laughs> the Catholics are getting involved in something like this. At its peak, there were twenty five. Thousand vaudeville artists working in four thousand theaters. Wow, that is. And Tony well, Pastor was a former up. ringmaster with P.T. Barnum, the circus. That's right, he was. Yeah, which makes total sense because the circus acts were on the rise at this point as well. That was another emerging form of entertainment. By 1925, the Keith Albee Circuit had 350 theaters and employed 20,000 people. It's just a lot. It's just a lot. Yeah. It's just a big number. Like it's, I had nothing else to add. To that. That's just a big number. And that was at its peak. That is just crazy yeah. to think about. This was huge. It was absolutely huge in terms of its popularity and its numbers. And the other thing about yeah. this is vaudeville. It spanned groups. We already talked about how multiple races were involved with this. But it also spanned the strata of economic class because pretty much everybody was coming to see these things, which is a little bit astonishing to me because it sounds like it started off as what we would call blue collar sort of entertainment. But it was so popular that everybody was going to see it. It really bridged the gap there as well. I found some interesting, (laughs) some interesting little idioms from here. Apparently, you know, there was a common question in vaudeville where they would say, will it play in Peoria? And it was a metaphor for something that appeals <laughs> to the American mainstream public because Peoria, Illinois, vaudeville saw a lot of success in Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> that was that's actually in the Bugs Bunny episode, too. Oh, really? They, they name drop Peoria. Bugs and Elmer's act first opens in Peoria and Bugs literally says we're in Peoria and then. You know, you see them on stage and they he gets hit in the face with a pie. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, they, they yeah. actually name drop that, which yeah. I think I found really interesting. Yeah. And uh, even though we talked about how, you know, those those two guys were starting their stuff in Boston. But as you would expect, the capital of vaudeville, the big time was New York City's Palace Theater or just the palace, as a lot of vaudevillians That's called right. it. It was built by Martin Beck in 1913 and it was operated mm-hmm. by Keith. I guess if there's a Carnegie Hall. <laughs> yeah. for vaudeville <laughs> it would be the palace apparently yeah in, until it wasn't <laughs> yeah like a yeah. lot of things unfortunately true <laughs> a lot of things unfortunately <laughs> when it did eventually die off and this was something that i found really interesting especially in light of what we see in the film a lot of people consider the death knell for vaudeville to be when that theater closed and we have a theater closure was, uh, in the movie We have a theater closure in the movie, and this is interesting. The theater actually closed November 16th, 1932. Oh. That was it. That was the final nail in the coffin. 1932 was when that theater was closed for renovations to turn it into a movie palace. Oh, boy. There you go. I think that is a very, very clear parallel because that was it. 
vaudeville limped into the 30s limped and not for very long either and not for very long 1932 one year before our film takes place the same thing that happens to Ann Darrow happened to the Palace Theater. Yeah. You brought up Bugs Bunny and all that. I'm yep. sure the people who were working at Warner Brothers making those were familiar with vaudeville. Interestingly, I found this quotation from James Very Cagney. So. He said, everything I know I learned in vaudeville. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that's a very famous quote of him. Cagney's amazing, but he's just one of these. We'll talk about this this list in a second. There are right so many people number that people. you know we know oh, that got amazing. their start in vaudeville. We mentioned a little bit about how there were elements of vaudeville performances that were known for being body. Well, that's also because mm-hmm. vaudeville had a, I guess you could say, maybe not a cousin, maybe a sister <laughs> called burlesque. <laughs> because of that, and I bring this up because you know we have a character in this film, Anne who is a vaudeville performer. And according to the research I was looking at, they said in vaudeville there was increasing, I find this interesting, there was increasing interest in the female figure and they were starting to use it for their promotions and to get attention, doing sexy routines, I guess you could say. I'm guessing, yeah, this actually, this might be about that time where you know the concept of sex sells really started to blow up and people yeah. started to figure that out. So they would have scandalous material to get attention. That was nicknamed Blue Vaudeville. <laughs> because <laughs> they're a highly sexualized space where unclad bodies, this is a quotation I found on Wikipedia, unclad bodies, provocative dancers, and singers of blue lyrics all vied for attention. <laughs> it was, so they were objectifying the female body as a sexual delight. Historians say that was the moment that the female body became a sexual spectacle. Yep. Vaudeville performers such as Julie Mackey and Gibson's bathing girls began to focus less on talent and more on physical appeal through their figure yeah. and tight gown. So it's pretty much if you have this image of empty headed, beautiful women, that's kind of where it came from. They started be- being like, oh, you're pretty. Can you do anything? No. Well, you're pretty. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll use you because you're pretty. It'll get yeah. butts and seats. Pretty despicable, but yeah, it worked. You know? it, unfortunately, it did. Now, like I said, not everybody yeah. did that. There were a couple of guys who was like, nope, we're not doing that. But still. Yeah, we're not about that. Yeah. Even in the, yeah, interesting, in the 1920s, there were announcements made where people were looking for all-girl bands for vaudeville performances. So you had stuff like <laughs> the uh, yeah. Genuines and the Dixie Sweethearts. Not the Dixie Chicks. It's the Dixie yeah, Sweethearts. Yeah, different, different thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was called the All-Girl Review. And, when I, and review, R-E-V-U-E. Just yep, so you know. That's right. So there was an element of that. But like I said, you had burlesque. And I know when we were talking before we started broadcasting, you were wanting to talk a little bit about burlesque because we see burlesque in this. There's a small element of that. I had mentioned in episode two for 33, there's some potential implication that if Anne had been desperate enough or that there were people in her shoes desperate enough that uh, women, they would have turned to prostitution. In this, it wasn't yeah. prostitution. It was burlesque. She almost walks, and Denim as well, almost walks into a burlesque theater. Yeah, and that's a that's a pretty crucial moment in the film. And it's kind of almost hinted at because when she's tailing Weston through the streets of New York and he gives her the little piece of paper with the address on it, Yes, you know, it, you can kind of tell he's sending her somewhere that's probably not a great place to go. But, he, you know, he says, hey, forget you were ever there. 
and he leads into it by saying, you know, you're, you're not bad looking. A girl like you looks like you doesn't need to starve. Yes. So he gives her this thing and she goes and she finds out what it is and she ditches. She's gone. She yes. doesn't want any part of that. A lot of girls at that time would probably have been faced with similar decisions, especially considering the fact that performing arts like vaudeville, which were generally cleaner, were starting to disappear because the other thing that was really starting to take vaudeville down was technology. Yes. Right. It was technology. But people were still going to these theaters. These theaters still existed. And I mean, not everybody had a radio at this point to listen to all of the vaudeville performers that transitioned over to radio. Which and there were we'll a talk lot. About in a sec. There were a lot. We'll talk about those guys in a second. But like these places still existed. It's amazing because it's had to have been easier, obviously, for a person to leave a closed vaudeville theater and walk down the street to get a job at a burlesque joint than to go to a radio station and try to audition especially if you weren't big, like people knew Jack Benny before he was on the radio. People knew Bob Hope. People knew all these guys, you know, the, the Marx Brothers. You know, people knew those guys. But if little Ann Darrow, who, you know, we see, you know, dancing with a mustache, tried to yes. go get a, uh, a radio job, I just don't think it would have worked because it, it's also not implied that her talents involve her voice either. Yeah, we never uh, because see her she, sing. She can she scream sing. really well, but we she never can hear scream. her sing. She's definitely got the pipes, but we, we don't know if she can sing. But we, we see her dance and do very physical things, and then we see her yeah, juggle we've, later. We see and her then dance, the, we yeah. see her juggle, and she does pratfalls, physical comedy. She does pratfalls. And then at the very end, she dances to Bye Bye Blackbird for three seconds before she realizes that her, she is needed elsewhere. She would not have had a career in radio. It's basically the same thing that killed off all of the great silent movie actors is once they had to talk, a lot of them started losing their jobs. Yeah, I know. I've seen Singing in the Rain. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Burlesque would have been the obvious place to go. Thankfully, she decides that she's above that and she'd rather steal apples. Thank goodness Jack. Uh, you did it again. Is, is there, nah, it's just a thing. Because <laughs> I, I don't think I can get this right at this point. Uh, he's there. He's there. And that's when he sees her. So the burlesque theater is also an important plot point setting. If she hadn't gone there and he hadn't gone there, the movie wouldn't have happened. Also, interestingly, I just saw this, those French terms that we were talking about where vaudeville may have gotten its name. One of them also means voices of the town. Yeah, that was the one that I found first Mm -hmm. when I was looking into this stuff. That might be my favorite. Yes. Uh, The the one with the river, the drunken, that's pretty good. (laughs) Here's the thing. Despite the fact that, you know, like I said, we we said this was super popular for a good 30 to 40 years, started to wane in the 20s, was dead by the early 30s. Yeah. So it had a really nice run there. But we mentioned before, there are a lot of famous people who got their start in vaudeville and transitioned to other forms like film, like radio. But it's not only that, but a lot of stuff that in our culture still comes from vaudeville. Like, I didn't know this. The words flop and gag. You even said gag earlier today in our broadcast. I did. Those came from vaudeville. I find that amazing. They were vaudeville words that eventually became American idioms. I find that fascinating. And the idea of doing, you know, this was a variety stage show. That sort of tradition never went away. It just changed form. Have you ever heard the term variety show? Uh, (laughs) That was a huge thing in television when you got to the 50s and 60s and for a while into the 70s. Even stuff like late night talk shows, The Tonight Show. They were following a lot of the same traditions as that. It just carried over. Yeah, it just carried over. Heck, uh, when I think back on it now, The Muppet Show, which Uh was a show within a show. (laughs) The Muppet Show is vaudeville. It is. 
straight up. And it is vaudeville, it, man. Yeah. Tim's going to love this. My friend, my friend Tim is going to love this. You know, the fact we're talking about the Muppet show and we're calling it vaudeville. He's probably <laughs> jumping up and down in his seat right now. <laughs> That's You're welcome, Tim. Please true. come back to Monster <laughs> Island. We miss you. That's right. We have, we have cookies here. Um, <laughs> the earliest practitioners of these big game-changing variety things were the vaudeville performers. Because like I said before, aside from the theater starting to turn, you know, well, actually that it's included because it's still a kind of technology. Technology started killing vaudeville. Film technology closed the theaters down. And then there came the radio. I mean, I'll just use Jack Benny as an example. He had what might be the most popular variety radio show of the era. And then when television came about, he transitioned to television and had a variety show there, which was incredibly successful. And a lot of these guys did, and a lot of them started acting. And again, I'm going to read off a brief list of just some of these guys, because you're definitely going to recognize names like Bob Hope. Oh, yeah. Milton Burl, the Marx Brothers, specifically, I'm looking at Groucho here. <laughs> uh, I love him. Will Rogers, uh, Mike Gu- Al Jolson, I mentioned him earlier. Laurel and Hardy, Money and Bertlar. Wizard of Oz is one of my favorite movies, and I love him to death. Sophie Tucker, Edwin. I love Edwin. Who doesn't love Edwin? Rosemary for Dick Van Dyke Show fans out there. I mean, the list just goes on, the three and, on, stooges? And, on and on. The Three Stooges are the like one of the big ones. All of the Three Stooges were included here. Dear God, but my and the, the ones that really get to me, my personal favorites, Abbott and Costello. Oh yeah, I'm Abbott and Costello to me. And again, funny is funny, man. I mean, the, the, those two guys will be funny until the, the humanity comes to an end. I love <laughs> those guys. And, and here's here's how I'll wrap this part up because this is one of my favorite things when it all comes full circle. So vaudeville, you've got these two dudes who jumped on trains and went across the country. Bud Abbott, Lou Costello, when vaudeville and burlesque, because they did do burlesque for a while, too. That's actually where they got really big was burlesque. And then they transitioned into radio after that. That's where some of their best gags came from. I mean, who's on first will never not be the funniest thing on earth. It's so good. And then eventually their radio show was huge. They were voted the number one celebrities in the world. I don't remember which year. And eventually they ended up in film. And then in the 1950s, they ended up on television. They had their own variety show again, and they went along with the times. But here's where it all comes full circle, because as a fan of Abbott and Costello, I'm, of course, a big fan of their monster films that they did over at Universal. Yes. They, they met up with the Frankenstein monster, Dracula, the Wolfman, and they did a number of films together. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The Mummy was their last film that they actually did for Universal in general. But here's where things get crazy because there was almost an Abbott and Costello meet King Kong. I was about to bring that up. Thank you, and John LeMay, is, for bringing that to my thank attention. Thank you, John LeMay. John LeMay uh, gets all the credit for that because I'd never heard of this project before I read his book. Anyone out there who's listening who doesn't have Kong unmade or any of John's books, what are you doing? Go get those books. They're Please amazing. Do. Please get those books. They're, you will not regret it. Best money you'll ever spend. There's, other than the $5 Walmart Kong Blu-ray. Yeah. Go get those books. They're amazing. But yeah, they, that almost became a thing. Talk about an interesting, it's not really six degrees of separation. It's more like a giant circle. It's more like a yes. loop. And it all comes back to King. We almost had two of the preeminent vaudeville performers of all time meet King Kong in a movie. Yes. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, Jimmy? We're going there. He also wants to remind us that 
if vaudeville paved the way for the variety show vaudeville also paved the way for the star wars holiday special jimmy <laughs> jimmy my man we were having so much fun we were being so positive <laughs> happy life day oh, that's all i gotta say happy, happy life, life day jimmy happy life day everyone happy life oh, day <laughs> moving on speaking Thanks. of vaudeville performers Weirdly enough, I don't think this was brought up on the Blu-ray, but I found out through my perusals of the interwebs that there was a specific and apparently pretty famous vaudeville performer that Anne in this movie is modeled after. Her name, her stage name anyway, was June Havoc, which just sounds amazing. <laughs> that is a great name. It is a great this is name. A great, this is a great story. Too, it is, by yeah, the way. It's a it is a great story. name. An absolutely great name. Her memoir was actually optioned by Peter Jackson. It was called Early Havoc. He optioned that so that the screenwriters could use that to flesh out Anne's characterization. So a very real performer became the model for Anne. This woman has a very interesting life story. <laughs> I only got little snippets of it because I haven't read her memoirs, but she was actually a child vaudeville performer. And she eventually went on to act on Broadway and in movies and interestingly in television. In fact, she was on General Hospital in 1990. I think I was on General Hospital in 1990. Every, every, <laughs> As a gleam in your father's eye, but... <laughs> that, that, this is true. But That's as body as we're getting off. on this show. <laughs> but what's interesting, Agreed. though, is nobody is 100% sure when she was born. Some years give it as 1912, some as 1916, some as 1918, because I guess her mother, who was also in vaudeville and sounds to me like was possibly insane, <laughs> fudged the birth certificates because of child labor laws. So no one's quite sure when she was born. She also had a sister who we mentioned burlesque being the sister of vaudeville. Her sister was a famous burlesque dancer named Gypsy Rose Lee. I know Gypsy Rose Lee. Oh. <laughs> Not that well. I know of her. I should probably clarify. You know her? Okay, Jimmy, keep it to yourself. I, I, I'm, I, my brain is hurting too much as it is. We'll talk later, Jimmy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, here's what's really nuts. Miss Havoc, I just like saying that, Miss Havoc, was actually married three times. Her first marriage was when she was 16. <laughs> And it was to this boy she met while performing at Vaudeville. He was another Vaudeville performer. Around this time, her parents got divorced, and she and her sister were actually earning most of the family's income through their Vaudeville performances. And even her sister was upset with June because June kind of overshadowed her. I guess she was the more talented of the two. She got an audition with Mr. Pentagus. We mentioned it before. They called her Baby June <laughs> when she was performing with him. So apparently she didn't talk until the age of three, but any movies that she was in were silent anyway, because I guess she did some film performances as well. This is just insane. She would cry for the cameras when her mother told her that the family's dog had died. That's how she got a performance out of her as a oh, child. Cow. That's insane. Wow. But yeah. But like Mom I said, she got married at 16 and she did it because she was trying to get away from her crazy mother. And she eloped with this guy. His name was Bobby Reed. And then it says, weeks later, after performing at the Jayhawk Theater in Topeka, Kansas, December 29th, 1928, it says, Rose reported Reed to the Topeka police, and he was arrested. And then Rose had a concealed gun on her when she met Bobby at the police station. She pulled the trigger, but the safety was on. <laughs> this is the day. mother. Okay, keep in mind, this is the mother. She tried to murder this guy. 
And they had to pry her off the poor guy. So I guess she fired the gun. It didn't work. And then she just attacked him and the cops had to pull her off. It's insane. Did she try throwing the gun? (laughs) Why not? They should have. (laughs) (laughs) But then they got married and she, which allowed her to leave both the family and their act. Unfortunately, the marriage didn't last as I already pointed out, but even after they divorced, the two of them were on good terms for the rest of their lives. Good. And they did have a daughter together. Her name was uh, April Rose. Do you, do you remember the time your mom tried to shoot me? <laughs> oh, good, good time. Oh, we got to get together for a reunion one of these days. Oh, that oh. must have been a very interesting reunion. Uh, hopefully it never happened. And by the way, their daughter grew up to become an actress. She went by the name April Kent. Nice. And we do know for sure that... Miss Havoc, I just like saying that, died in 2010, so she is no longer with us. That's almost 100 years, so that's great. And she's a, got two stars film. on the Hollywood Walk of Fame now, one for film and one really? for television. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's awesome. I wonder if that's uh, an interesting thing in the film, because if you'll remember, the play that Jack Driscoll writes for Anne is called Cry Havoc. I noticed that, and I wondered. Yeah, yeah I really yeah. wonder if that had been a little sure. allusion to Miss Havoc. It's possible. I, I don't know for sure, but I mean, considering they optioned the book, yeah, that might be an interesting way to reference that. Yeah, well, it's it's a double reference if if that's the case because it's also Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. All right, I can already tell you, I'm not necessarily looking forward to the editing of this because this episode really, really, despite our best efforts, wants to be as long as this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it my Carl Denham best <laughs> to see what I can do. With less human endangerment. But, uh, Obviously. Still. Although yeah. I work on Monster Island, so. <laughs> you know, it, it is part of the job. Know, you should see the OSHA files that come through here. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how the board of directors oh puts my gosh, up with it. <laughs> they have the interns do it. Oh, yeah. They don't even see any of that stuff. <laughs> That's how you started? You were an intern filing the paperwork? God, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> A little bit more backstory for Jimmy here. One of these days, he's going to spill it all. Yeah, one of these one days. Day. But he loves that yeah. international man of mystery thing. Yeah, I, I don't blame him. It is it, There is some appeal. Yeah. Does it help you with the ladies? I don't need to know. I don't yeah, need to know. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But anyway, our next episode will be yet another mini-analysis, and a mini-analysis that follows through with an unintentional theme. <laughs> it, it will be the three treasures. We're going back to classic Toho. And I say it's an unintentional theme because it is also a three-hour epic. <laughs> I did not great, plan on that. Great movie. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's a great movie, but I'm like, man, I am going to have so much work. <laughs> oh, crap. So much work. <laughs> I'm also kind of trying to see if I, I'm trying to challenge myself to do a 25-minute episode on a three-hour movie. See if I can do it. I think, yeah, as long as it's not three hours. There's plenty to talk about with that film, though. I'm, I'm glad more people are getting the chance to see it these days because it is quite a beautiful movie. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. And then our next big discussion episode, our next stop on the Conquest. That never gets old. <laughs> we will be going to the MonsterVerse, finally, with 2017's Kong Skull Island. And joining me for that episode will be Dallas Mora from Geek Devotions. I'm looking forward to this. (laughs) It'll be exciting. I'm excited to give it a listen. It should be awesome. All righty. And thank you once again for joining me, Danny. 
It's been great having you here. I am now going to give you the floor and you may do all the shameless self-promoting you want because we love ourselves some shameless self-promoting here on Monster Island. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll definitely do my very best. As Nate mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I am the author of and creator of the Godzilla Novelization Project, which is a uh, slightly insane ongoing project on my part to... It's your Carl Denham project, yeah. <laughs> it is my Carl Denham... It is, this is, might be as insane as sticking my camera into the mouth of a tiger and asking him to look good. Um, <laughs> It is about that nuts because the Godzilla novelization project is a massive endeavor on my part to eventually, this will take a while, but I'm, I'm making pretty good progress on it, convert all of the Japanese Godzilla films into full novels. This is something that has never been done, even in Japan. There are a couple of books here and there, but I felt like there needed to be novelizations of these films. It's something that I love doing. I love reading and I love reading film novelizations. And I thought, well, they don't exist, so I'm going to do it. Actually, as of today, this recording, this is the second anniversary of the project. Um, so, yes, yes. Happy birthday to me. It's definitely been a long road and it's going to be a lot longer. But this is a project that I am incredibly passionate about. I have accumulated quite a uh, lovely group of readers and followers who uh, really seem including to be liking myself. what I'm doing, including including you. Nate was uh, one of the first people, along with Brian, to give me a platform to promote the show via an interview, which is almost two years ago now. Can you believe that? I know. That? It's weird to think um, about that. At, yeah, which is a, at, I had a blast doing it, a big, an interview at uh, G-Fest. So one of the, I think honestly, one of the reasons that I, uh, that people have been started to know who I was two years ago when I did this interview was thanks to them giving me an opportunity to talk about it, which I'm, I will always be grateful for. And, and more people have been coming out of the woodwork to support this project. So if you're at all interested, head over to the website. Again, I'm working on trying to get a better website figured out, but right now it's a free WordPress account, www.godzillanovelizationproject.wordpress.com all one incredibly long cumbersome word right now the website <laughs> is yes right now the, the website is currently home to the beginning of i want to say 10 plus different books different godzilla novels i'm jumping around between different adaptations to give the website a little bit of variety i worked for a few years to start different books i'm done starting new stories now and i'm fully focused on trying to finish the books that have already been started adaptations for the original godzilla king kong versus godzilla a lot of other Showa films, Hedera, Gigan, Magalon, and I think maybe just two Millennium so far, GMK and Against Mechagodzilla, have been started. This, the website is also home to a couple of, actually several, Godzilla timelines, which is a side project. I'm chronicling the individual events of each Godzilla-verse, if you want to call it that. So that's an ongoing project. The site is also home to some short stories that also adapt other Godzilla and Kaiju stories from Toho specifically. Little performance things are being done to the site all the time to make it easier to read and make it look better. And I'm not a web designer, so I'm trying to make it look a little bit better. If that sounds like your jam, be sure to check it out. And uh, all I can ask is that if you go to the site and read one of these books and like what you read, that you share it. If you're so inclined with other monster movie and uh, reading loving people and maybe see if they enjoy it too, because if I can use what little platform I have to remind people about why these films are great and why they love them so much, then that's all I can really ask for. Again, that's uh, www.godzillanovelizationproject.wordpress.com. 
track me down on Twitter and Facebook if you want to follow and chat with me. I love talking with people about monster movies and Godzilla and obviously King Kong. You know, it's this is my thing. I'll talk about just about every aspect of it from the behind the scenes stuff to toy collecting, things like that. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, follow me there. You can find other ways to contact me via email and other platforms on the website. If you really like what you read and you'd like to support the project with your hard-earned money, I do have a Patreon account. I'm currently working on getting merchandise uh, like t-shirts and coffee mugs and other things produced for Patreon. So that's an ongoing process. Hopefully there'll be more coming out here soon. That's really my big claim to fame. And if, again, if this sounds like your jam, go ahead and check it out. And I hope you enjoy what you read. Really? That's a generous offer. Jimmy says if you start writing Monster Zero, he'll take you home in the SY3. Hmm. My man, Jimmy, you might just have yourself a deal here. I mean, I know you're a big fan of Mr. Nick Adams, so I will, you know what? That might just be in the cards, my man. Yes, as he has frequently said on his Twitter, because I am contractually obligated to mention his Twitter, you should follow him at NASA Jimmy. Nick Adams is his spirit animal, which is a kind of a weird thing for a NASA scientist to talk about. And <laughs> Glenn trained him That's back right. in the day at NASA. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I'll tell you what, Jimmy, just to sweeten the deal a little bit. I mean, I know you don't have a lot going on. I don't know exactly how you earn your money, but if you become a Patreon backer at $10 plus, I will put your name in the Monster Zero book as a character. I will find a character that didn't have a name and I'll name him Jimmy from NASA. You have a deal. Well done, I, sir. <laughs> sounds good. You get an Heck, SY3 yeah. trip. He gets to hang out with his hero, at least in book form. <laughs> I'm canonizing you, buddy. This is it. That's it. I I appreciate your generous Patreon support. (laughs) All right. Thank you once again, Danny. But uh, before we go, do you have any quick writing advice for the kaiju lovers out there? I do. It's been really interesting because a lot of other writers have been coming to me and asking me to look at their work, which is really cool. And I always tell them the same thing. And I'm going to tell everyone else the same thing, too. Four words. Get your Sekizawa on. All right, and with that, cue credits. Thank you for listening to the Monster Island Film Vault, a podcast produced and hosted by Nathan Marchand. If you enjoy the show and want to join the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at feedback at monsterislandfilmvault.com. Your message could be read on a future episode of the show. Our website is monsterislandfilmvault.com. Follow us on Facebook at Monster Island Film Vault, and on Twitter, where our handle is the Monster Isla One. You can also follow Jimmy from NASA on Twitter at NASA Jimmy. I have fulfilled my contractual obligations. The podcast logo was created by Tyler Souls from TylerDrawsComics.com. Our theme song is Wander on the Offensive, live edit by B33J, Serax, Juan Madrano, and Nonsensical Lexus, which is a remix of Counterattack, Battle with the Colossus and The Opened Way, Battle with the Colossus by Kowotani from the video game Shadow of the Colossus. It can be downloaded from ocremix.org. All film and audio clips belong to their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and other fine podcatchers. Please rate and review the podcast to help spread the word about the show. The Monster Island Film Vault is a Moonlighting Ninjas Media production. Sayonara!